Just got back from uh, Burlington, Vermont. Um, and I'm going to tell you something that I have been there a bunch of times in the last couple of years. And what I have not noticed until now is that the uh, kind of mid to late 90s uh, hippie subculture mm-hmm. that was very popular for a while, still alive and well there. Oh, yeah. Yeah. There's um, there's this Instagram account called Catatonic Youth that I subscribe to. And they occasionally, what they do is they're they're like regular compilations of just like the worst music that's ever been published to the internet. And every one of them, I swear to God, involves like some group of hippies. And it's a video, like a video clip that you can smell. And so I'm always very surprised that like that element still exists in our society. Like I figured that they had been sort of shamed back into their caves. It is very odd because it does seem like it was distinctly 90s, like like when sort of like fish were really at their peak. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because like, uh, what was I worked at that record store down on the beach and that guy sold a ton of like fish and other jam band bootlegs. Like, I guess jam bands are still a thing, but that felt like a real 90s cultural item, right? Yeah. And it's really weird. But like we, we went to this place called Foam uh, in Burlington. And we ended up at like a reggaeton concert. Huh. I mean, concert is sort of a weird word, but, uh, you know, it was a small brewery. There's this band playing and the band was fine. Too loud for the space, but it was fine. And the, there were so many people in the crowd. And like one dude was wearing, I shit you not, like a baby doll T-shirt over. And then like over that, he had on like this ratty ripped up kind of button down that like it looked like the buttons were. It looked like uh, something that would be on like a uh, Frankenstein monster costume. Like the <laughs> sleeves were ripped. The hem was. Ripped, and I was just like and he, he had like a weird rat tail in his hair, which is very 90s. I don't, I don't and he, care for it that. really it really looked like he had not washed his hair in a long time, like days. Yeah. Because it looked really greasy. And I'm not bashing the dude. Like, have your fucking fun. Look however you want to look. It just struck me as very odd that this, like, what I associate with a very particular era is still just like, I don't know, maybe it's coming back because young people seem to really like to dress like it's the 90s for some Mm. reason that I don't understand because nobody looked good back then, myself included. But I just found it really odd that, like, this is a thing that still exists. I mean, God bless them. They looked like they were having fun and, uh, you know. I'm thankful for that. Yeah, I'm sure that there are places in this country where there are just like it, it feels sort of like how the the internet has has made everything available all the time, so that there's not really these little corners where subcultures can hide anymore. But it does seem like there are places around this country where every now and then you kind of like stumble onto a thing, and you're like, "Huh, so that's still a thing. That's cool." Yeah, I mean, I'm just glad. You know, I'm glad glad these, uh, these sort of. Uh, subculture still exists, I guess. Yeah. yeah, I don't want to know. I don't want to hang out with them, but uh, you know, yeah, I mean, I'm, yeah, I'm not, I'm not down for that. Yeah. But yeah, someone's got to buy fish bootlegs, I guess. <laughs> it's a, a booming economy. Yeah. Oh yeah, you know what I went to today? What's I it? went to Kowloon. Kowloon. You went to Kowloon. Kowloon. Oh uh... yes, Kowloon. Yep. Wow. Yeah. I I always I thought that place was closed. I guess I I feel like I've thought it was closed for a really long time. You know, you're not wrong because it, it seems to open and close when. <laughs> Whenever somebody gets like stabbed there or something, uh, yeah. for those of you, you, you're not a New Englander, you're not, you know, around Boston. Kowloon is this, is this 
Chinese food mega restaurant that, that sort of exists on the side of Route 1 heading north out of Boston. If you've lived around here, it's been there since the fucking 60s, at least. Uh, but it, being in the location that it is, the potential for violence while you're eating your Chinese food, it's higher than you think. So, yeah, it, it, it opens and it closes depending on its status as a crime scene. But it is. It's kind of like when people are like, hey, did you know so and so died? Like, like, like when, uh, what's his name? Uh, Richard Pryor died. And people are like, hey, uh, oh man, Richard Pryor died. And they'd be like, Richard Pryor died like 10 years ago. And they'd be like, no, he died like three days ago. <laughs> it's that kind of thing where I'd be like, I swear that guy's been dead for a long time. Like, I swear yeah. Kowloon's been closed for a real long time. Turns yeah. out it isn't. Nope. It's, Can't uh, say it's I've still ever there. Been there. No, there people sometimes confuse it with Weilu's, which was another Chinese that is food. That's definitely gone. Yeah, which was another Chinese food mega restaurant that existed on <laughs> Route One heading north and out of Boston. Uh, but that one's been gone since uh, I think the late nineties. But yeah, hey, Chinese food in New England ain't it great? Uh, so here it is. It's hard to explain to someone who's never had the experience what a trip to the video store was like back in the day. The shelves were choked with absolute bizarre crap made on tiny budgets, completely divorced from any recognizable reality. And man, it was the best. And we intend to talk about every single one of them. Uh, just before we get into it, if you're hearing this and you aren't aware of our other show, Dave and I do a horror movie podcast in the weeks when 99 Cent Rental is off called Bring Me the Axe. Our latest episode covers an 80s classic, Fright Night with guest Peaches Christ. Uh, and coming up next week, we'll be looking at the utterly baffling slasher movie, X-Ray, also known as yeah, Hosp so Hospital good. Massacre. So good. Yeah, so good. Hop on top of that one. It's on Tubi right now. You have to you have to search very specifically X-Ray. Otherwise, it won't show up. Yeah, I, I recommend it. It's, it is something. Uh, it's one of the most confusing horror movies I've ever seen. And yet it's like something, it's like chat bot or like a chat bot. <laughs> ch movie yeah, chat G, somebody asked chat GPT hmm. to make a slasher movie in the style of the eighties. And that's what it came up with. Oh man. Yeah. If you want to keep up with us between episodes, you can find us at on Instagram that bring me the ax pod. Dave's over there at that queer wolf. We're having a really good time right mm -hmm. now. Yeah. We've also got a sweet website now at 99 cent rental.com. You can listen to all our past shows there and read the transcripts. You can also contact us directly at 99centrentalpod at gmail.com with any questions, comments, or suggestions. Do let us know if there's a cheesy movie that you love and would like to hear us give it the business. And lastly, if you like what you hear, you can subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts. We're on YouTube now. You can search for us by name. Subscribe there if you prefer to consume your podcasts that way. And you'd be doing us a favor by leaving us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. And if you listen on YouTube, do us a favor, give the episode a like and leave a comment because we love hearing from you. Mm -hmm. Just want to get that all out of the way right at the top of the show. And uh, that number keeps climbing. I do like to see, you know, them five star reviews coming in. So some of you haven't done it and you really ought to because. Yeah, I'd like yeah. it. I'd like it if it yeah, did. It makes me feel good. So shall we give them a little taste? I was silent. I think you should do that very thing. All right, so we're gonna give you a taste of what we're gonna we're gonna go over tonight. 20th Century Fox presents Phantom of the Paradise, a gothic horror story. What was that? A beautiful love story. A cinematic odyssey through the rock universe from Greece. To glitter wow! and beyond. 
The story of a sound. The man who created it. The girl who sang it. The monster who stole it. And the phantom who haunts the paradise. The ultimate rock palace. Phantom of the Paradise. My music is for Phoenix. Only she can sing it. Anyone else that tries, dies. Phoenix. Phoenix. Well, you told me one time that you'd be somebody, that you weren't working just to survive. B. Man, you better get yourself a castrato for this. Paul Williams as Swan. And the angels that I want you to stop terrorizing the paradise and rewrite your cantata. And the Phantom. Phantom of the Paradise. There really is the Phantom. Phantom. Look, I don't know Brian De Palma, and I was not alive in 1974, but I'm going to guess he was on a bunch of drugs when he made this movie. <laughs> That's, I got a little bit of a note about that, because this is, he's not necessarily a director who's nailed down to a single genre. He works in a lot no, he of- he hadn't them. figured out his thing yet. And th- But this one is a weird one, even by that standard. Like, it sticks out like a sore thumb, but still, it's probably my favorite De Palma movie. And it, I also, my, my first thought right out of the gate, Paul Williams is fucking insanely talented. He is. He's a very surprising, he's a surprisingly capable actor. He's got a, he's got a real charm. I feel like he probably has like one speed in terms of acting, because he's not an actor. Sure, yeah. But he he does it pretty well. Yeah, because I well I also I don't I don't think he really shows up in anything as a sort of featured actor after this, except for Cannibal Run. Or no no, no not 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 Cannibal Run. He was uh, uh Smoking the Bandit is the one that he's in. Yep. Yeah. But uh yeah. So uh here's a warning before we get rolling. We're gonna talk about this movie from beginning to end. Spoilers to follow. You have had since 1974 to watch this movie. Uh, but, uh, so get to it. Yeah, get your shit together. If you haven't seen this movie, fucking go buy it. I, yeah. It's gotta be streaming. I didn't really look to see where it was streaming. It's probably, I don't know if it is streaming. It's, it's a, a shame if it weren't, but yeah, uh, there's a really great, it's a really great Blu-ray that, uh, Scream Factory put out. It's, it's a hell of a movie. I feel like this movie has weird licensing rights. I mean, I know it has weird licensing rights for music and I know it, uh, I think the music is what holds up it being shown in theaters. Huh? Yeah. Yeah. Like I wonder like cuz I know that there's differences in 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 the way that that movie like oh, we haven't said it yet. This is a and if the if it's not evident, this is a musical. <laughs> yeah. Yes, Phantom of the Paradise is it's a it's a rock and roll musical. The trailer probably made that pretty clear, but yeah. This is also this is our uh, our first Oscar nominated movie. It, what was it? Nominated no, music I uh, Yeah, it was a it was a music nomination. Let me look that up cuz I'm not actually sure. I know I know it did not it didn't, win. didn't win, but I don't know what it lost to. But uh, yeah, so best music and scoring, original song and or adaptation is what it was. What's the song? Oh, I don't know. It doesn't say. 
But uh, it, it, best music overall was the other. Because this, I mean, this is one fucking jam after another. In this the movie. music at this point. Like I said, Paul Williams is really, really talented. Yeah, it's, it's fucking crazy. So let's do let's do the facts. Uh, so the year was 1974. So here's 1974. Cher was topping the charts. <laughs> I'm just assuming she probably is that or the Carpenters. So uh, other movies released that year. John Carpenter's debut feature, Dark Star, came out in 1974. Mm. Uh, the Street Fighter with Sonny Chiba also came out that year. Mm. It's, it's a pretty good movie. Yeah. Uh, White Heaven and Hell, which is the final Lone Wolf and Cub uh, slash Baby Cart Samurai movie, came out that year, which is a, is a pretty good one. I'm a big fan of that series. Also that year, Super Inframan came out, which was the Shaw Brothers version of of the Japanese sort of Super Sentai Tokusatsu uh, superhero movies, that one I've only I've watched about twenty minutes of that movie. I've never made it much. Fun. I've had a hard time with all of their movies. That movie so. is f- pretty crazy. <laughs> and uh, lastly, rounding it out, Massimo Delamano's "What Have They Done to Your Daughters" came out that year. I just watched that through the night. God damn it, that's not a great. I movie. watched it also just recently uh, for the first time, and it's a hell of a jello. Yeah. So, cast and crew, as we said, this is d- directed by Brian De Palma, who's uh, notorious for themes of voyeurism. He's one of the first uh, blatant film fanboys who wore his influences on his sleeve. His mo- He's weirdly obsessed with uh, queer sexualities in a way that I think maybe he doesn't understand. Uh, yeah, I, I would say a little problematic. Yeah, a yes, little bit. Uh, I think across the board, Brian De Palma has uh, some issues with women. Yeah, in general. Yeah, I think uh, his uh, "Dress to Kill" is the one that I think really is really resonated with Fulci in a, a way that made him really kind of rip the whole thing off for New York Ripper because yeah. that movie also is unbelievable, is unrelentingly brutal. To, to the women in it. And so he must have watched Dressed to Kill in yeah, Ben's If you can get by the misogyny, if you can buy the misogyny and I guess what we could just call transphobia, I mean, it's a lot more complicated than that. But if you can get by that, it's a great movie. Yeah, yeah. It's the thing is like, you can't really throw the baby out with the bathwater on this. It's You got you to gotta reckon with the, the troubling bits and pieces of, the, of this guy's kind of point of view. But hey, that's what we're here for. We're here to talk about that shit. Yeah. Yeah, but uh, yeah, so his movies constantly point to other movies that he loves, uh, but he's a legit master of the art who eventually falls yeah. into a slump in the 90s and he never really pulls out of. But in the 80s, I would, yeah, I would say late 80s, he kind of in the 80s, by the time you make Scarface, it feels a little like, OK, well, buddy, came after. No, no, because no, after Scarface, he's got Scarface is what, 83, 83, and 84? then he does Body Double. Which is great. Ah, that one's really good too. Great. Fucking horrifying uh, murder, drill murder scene. Yeah, in that, that one. one's pretty intense. But, you know, like after that, he's got The Untouchables, which yeah, wins him, which wins him a bunch of Oscars. He gets a Golden Globe for that one also. But yeah, like. I would say Carlito's Way is probably his last decent movie. And Carlito's Way is a bit of a stretch because that one's not that good. Yeah. But yeah, he, he gets but, into the but 90s Brian and he De never Palma really. Loves, loves Italian films a lot. Yeah, oh, yeah. Yeah, he does. He does Blowout, which is essentially a remake of Peeping Tom. Is that a, and, is it, uh, not, no, not, not, pe- not Peeping Tom. Antonioni movie. It's Blow Up is the Antonioni. Blow Up. It's yeah. A, yeah. Which also hell that's a fucking gr- blood is a hell of a movie, uh, and also uh, a, a movie of his that I really love also from the seventies is The Fury, 
which the series is really good too. Which honestly, I am shocked that nobody went to court over Scanners because that movie is essentially yeah. a beat for beat. It's basically that, yeah. Uh, uh, play on, on. It's a less Canadian Scanners. <laughs> yeah, with uh, God. But uh, we also have avoided the obvious. He also made Carrie. Yep. Yep. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, just a hell of a hell of a director. He's. Uh, do you know anything about his brother, uh, Bruce De Palma? Mm, not really. His, uh, it's a fucking weird story. So his brother dies of cancer in the nineties, but he was like a, he was a, a physicist who essentially starts to publish these papers that, uh, outline these experiments that he did about bodies in, in rotation and how the out, the sort of energy output of these, these you know, these rotating bodies is greater than the energy input. So it sort of like breaks the laws of thermodynamics, but he's got a bunch of papers that people have tested and it kind I'm pretty sure you can't do that. Well, uh, Bruce De Palma did it and, and it, it, but he became sort of this pariah and then he got drummed out of like scientific circles. Yeah, to which I'd say, Lisa, in this house, we obey the laws of thermodynamics. <laughs> it's crazy. It's a really fucking weird story, but there's like this device that he built that like flings a ball bearing, but applies torque to it. And like, if he flings it without the torque, it, you know, it goes a certain distance, but if he applies torque, it goes a certain distance greater, which implies that it's pulling in energy from somewhere else it's fucking nuts it's a really interesting thing if you can sort of like get through the get through the shit unfortunately there's a bunch of like weird like uh free energy freaks who who sort of circulate the guy uh the guy's legacy and it kind of makes it hard to get a kind of objective uh, examination of it because like real scientists are just like he was crazy and it's all bullshit fucking pseudoscience ruins the party again so cast, as we mentioned, Paul Williams is, uh, is well, yeah, weird, weird cast. In this very one. strange cast. He's the mutant love child of Greg Allman and Dr. Zayas. He is a, he's a strange, an unfortunately strange looking man. He's a, he's a weird looking dude. He's a tiny, tiny little guy. Very, just a weird little guy. Extremely charismatic. Very charismatic. I can definitely see like what like what they saw in him. When he came into the production, they gave him way more power in sort of well because they need if in order for this movie to work they needed it. yeah without him this movie doesn't work so for, for people who do not know paul williams is not an actor really he is a songwriter yeah, he and he has written he wrote uh, a bunch of stuff for all the muppet movies the original muppet movies yep, he wrote uh he wrote rainbow stuff rainbow like connections he wrote yeah he, yep. rainbow connection is kind of his big muppet thing he wrote two songs he wrote it sounds like he wrote a shitload for the carpenters he wrote two songs uh, he, I think he wrote two hit songs, like two of their biggest hits. So he wrote "We've Only Just we've Begun." Only just begun. Um, he wrote uh, that song, "Old Fashioned Love Song" by Three Dog Night. Yep. Um, I think he wrote a couple songs for Linda Ronstadt uh, he, as well. Yeah, that's, you can that tell was, he had a big thing for Linda Ronstadt because clearly this one of the parts in this was written for her. Yeah. So originally, the the role of Phoenix, who goes to Jessica Harper, was written for not written for Linda Ronstadt, but he was really pushing for her. And it's not really clear why. Maybe they just. I think she's just not an actor. She's not an actor. Like, Maybe I think she, she did. I think she did audition for it. But I, I, my understanding is that it was just like, well, she's not really an actor. Yeah. So, but yeah, there's there's a certain tone and like timbre that he he writes for it's a kind of it's a woman's voice that's a little a little deeper a little smokier so like yeah it's a huskier kind of folk rock because you know linda ronstadt was a pioneer of like that kind of female 
kind of cosmic folk, uh, like, uh, like an Emmylou Harris type of singer. Yeah. I mean, Linda Ronstadt was an incredible singer. Unfortunately, she cannot sing anymore, but yeah. Uh, but also like Karen Carpenter had the exact same sound. Yeah. So like, that's why his music, uh, really works for her and you can hear it again, like fully on display and all the songs that, that Jessica Harper sings, but yep. Especially the one, like she has that big, um, I guess kind of like a showstopper number in the middle, yeah. uh, that is very clearly like this was, he wrote this with Linda Ronstadt in mind yeah. because it sounds just like a Linda Ronstadt song. Yeah. Yeah. yeah his, his stuff has a tendency to be really schmaltzy and sentimental, uh, which is, I love his music. I, I mean, I do too, which is perfect for the sort of saccharine AM pop trends of the seventies. When we first started talking about this episode, you messaged me and we're like, there's something really nihilistic about this movie. I think there's something cynical. I don't think it's nihilistic. And I think it's cynical and I'll get to that in a, in a minute. I but. think honestly, I think it's something about his music that, that does that because there is a cynicism that runs through everything he does in spite of the fact that it's very syrupy and, and uh, you know, like I said, sentimental. Well, yeah, I think you see that with the, like you see the trajectory of his music in this, in terms of like, it starts off with these like really kind of poppy songs and then it closes. I think it's either the last song or one of the last songs, that song, uh, the hell, the hell of, it, of it is the closing is number fucking killer song. And it's re it's a really fucking dark song. Yeah. yeah. And I just, I just think without, without uh, Paul Williams in this movie, the whole thing doesn't work no, no, because no. you don't get his music. And I think the movie is built around him anyway. It's written for him and it's built around him. Yeah. yeah. So also in this cast, we got William Finley, who is a regular uh, collaborator with De Palma. He's a New York actor. He shows up in a bunch of Woody Allen's movies. Uh, he is also he's a fucking great actor. It's weird that it did like never really like kind of kicked off for him, but he's really good. He's really good. He's also in a bunch of Toby Hooper movies. He shows, he he, oh, yeah, he's in Eaten Alive. He's in, he's oh, the yeah. kind of washed up uh, uh, carny magician in yeah. the Funhouse, who I love that role. That He's in it for just like five minutes, but he's fucking hilarious. I mean, he's in a bunch of De Palma's movies. He's in Sisters. He's in Dressed to Kill. He's in The Furies and this. Mm -hmm. I think he might be in home movies too. Yeah. But yeah, uh, he's also in Night Terrors, which was uh, a movie of Hooper's that I realized I'd never even heard of until I. It's his first movie, isn't no, it? Or no, second no, movie? it's a movie he did in the 90s. Night terror. Yeah. But mm. yep. And rounding it out, we got Jessica Harper, who's most familiar to listeners of this pod as Susie Banyan. Suspiria. Suspiria. <laughs> She's a multi-talented individual. She's an actress. She's also in shock treatment. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I got, I got a little thing down here. They're like, uh, whenever you needed like a singing actress, they kind of turned to her because like there's which is weird because she's not a great singer. I, I think, mean, she's fine. I think she's, she's like, a, she does it. I think she's great in this, but she's a little bit. I don't know. Maybe uh, maybe it's just the role that she's she's really leaning into the role because she comes across as really kind of tepid. Yeah. Yeah. Because there's not. But you know what it is? is there's the not a lot of her in this movie. There's way more phantom. I think they Swan. really tried to, to to promote it as though there was, though. Yeah. Like, I think they tried the, the promotion of this movie is a fucking mess. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, uh, she's, she continues to stay pretty busy between film and TV. She's also an, also an author of children's books and a singer, which is evident in this movie. And she, uh, she also, like you said, she appears in shock treatment, which is the Rocky horror movie, uh, sequel that yeah, we the Rocky will, horror sequel that we will probably very likely cover at some point in the future. Oh, it's bad. It's, bad. it's, it's really not, bad. It's, you ever seen it? Yeah. We, I remember we, we did that. We got that one in the nineties when we were kind of high on Rocky horror and we were like, well, let's see what this is about. And I remember very, very, very yeah, little. I was, I was obsessed with Rocky horror for obvious reasons. And I tracked that one down at, what was that video store in Portsmouth? It was upstairs. 
Oh, I it was above the. Well, it used to be a jewelry store. I don't know what's there now. I, I know what it, I knew which I know exactly which one. It's, it's like on Village Video or something. It's the one that's on uh, uh, fuck Market Street. It was on. It was a, yeah. yeah. I don't remember what it was. I think Village Video is what it was called actually. And they had a ton of like weird cult shit. Yeah. That's where I found that yeah. one. Yeah, but yeah. I we also get Garrett Graham in this movie. Garrett Graham, who the only other thing I've ever so he's in Child's Play, he's two, in Child's Play too, and he's in Chopping Mall for a minute, yeah. and that's like the only two things I can remember him from. Uh, for whatever reason, like this movie, this role has cemented him as Beef in my mind. So whenever I see him in anything, I'm like, oh shit, it's Beef, and then he does something that's just not like Beef, and I'm like, what the fuck is this mm-hmm. guy doing? Uh, so here's some taglines for this movie. He, <laughs> he's been maimed and framed beaten robbed and mutilated but they still can't keep him from the woman he loves yeah that's not a tagline that's a fucking paragraph yeah now here's two tag actual taglines and then one of them's pretty good he sold his soul for rock and roll which is okay. the which is the name of a sabbath compilation and then lastly one that i i kept seeing mentioned but i couldn't find actual evidence of this but it was the music made him do it I like that one too. I like that one. I like it because it it uh, there's a, a kind of call back to like uh, well I guess call forward maybe to like satanic panic that like obsession over rock and roll yeah. music the ev- like evil influence of rock and roll mm-hmm. the evil powers of rock and roll to quote the super suckers. <laughs> so uh, yeah, so the two dudes behind Daft Punk cite this as their favorite movie. And apparently, I can see yeah, apparently this is the movie that they kind of came together over and they, they watched it 20 times together. <sighs> French people, man. Yep. Uh, and also Paul Williams appears on their final album, Random Access Memories. And that, that album is fucking awesome. It's amazing. It's fucking and amazing. The, I mean, the Paul Williams, uh, Giorgio Moroder is also on yeah, that the, album. It's a really, really good record. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I'm not a big Daft Punk fan, but that album fucking It kicks kills. ass. Nile Rodgers is on it. Fucking, yep. Yeah, but that Giorgio Moroder track in particular is really great. Like, it, it's a hell of a record to go out on. So, uh, let's see. So, Phantom of the Paradise was essentially a box office flop on release. I've got some theory about this. And it's a cult staple today, but the phenomenon began, of all places, in Winnipeg, Canada. Mm -hmm. It was a massive hit there, uh, where the world was over it a week after it hit theaters. It ran for 20 weeks in Winnipeg, and nobody knows why. Yeah. So uh, there's a guy, a a director, um, what the fuck's his name? Uh, uh, Malcolm Ingram is his name. He's a documentary filmmaker. He made uh, a bunch of movies you've probably never seen. He made uh, Small Town Gay Bar. Um, he uh, he made that documentary about Clerks. The one about Kevin. Oh Smith. yeah, Clerk. So he made a documentary called Phantom of Winnipeg. And I, as far as I know, it it did the festival circuit, and it never really got distribution because they were just going to do a direct uh, physical release for it. And I'm, I don't know that they ever did, which is a shame because I really want to see yeah, it. What's, what's his name again? But he his name is Malcolm Ingram. Malcolm Ingram. Malcolm Ingram. If you're listening, we really want to see this documentary. Um, yeah, I don't, I, I don't, as far as I know, it did not get released, but it sounds awesome. But he spent a lot of time because he's Canadian. And he's sort of of an age that he would have, he wasn't, he didn't live in Winnipeg. He didn't grow up in Winnipeg, but he's sort of of that same age. And he thought it was kind of fascinating. So he has a lot to say about it. And so what his theory is that part, well, part of his uh, theory is that Canada has a provincial rating system 
And so it, it, you know, something can be rated R or whatever the equivalent of R is in Canada in one province, and then it can be rated something else in another. Ah. And in and in Winnipeg, which is in Manitoba, which is sort of sort of right in the middle of the country, it uh, it got like a really low rating, like it was just basically the equivalent of PG. And he suspects that it's because of that rating that it just sort of automatically got pitched to kids. And I'm going to get into a little bit of this in a minute. But and so he's his theory is that because they sold this movie to kids, it became a cool thing because he says that it's a phenomenon that's driven by young people, like really young. People. Huh. I wonder if it sort of coincides with Kiss at all, because like. The, oh, probably. It has a very kind of cool, edgy, like rock and rollness, but in a format that, and again, I will talk about that as well. I have a theory about this movie that it took me a while to cook it up. Right. I got okay. It. Awesome. Because because Kiss Kiss's first record comes out right around the same time that this movie comes out, but this movie really didn't gain legs in Canada until basically I think I think either seventy five or seventy six, and by that point, Kiss is like a worldwide phenomenon and a really, uh, really, really appeals to kids. And there's a little bit of just like aesthetic crossover here. So I mean, and the movie has a horror aesthetic oh, yeah. too. I mean, it's, it's basically a pastiche of a bunch of Victorian novels. Sure. But- sure. We've got a uh, picture Dorian Gray, fucking uh, the Phantom of the Opera. There's uh, Frankenstein. Frankenstein. I mean, it's yeah, all, it's, these it's all of them. And, and I think that that probably plays a role as well in that like it's it's not horror per se but it does have a horror aesthetic and a horror vibe that i think is accessible to children in a way that feels cool because i mean i still think it feels cool i think this is a great movie yeah um but that's sort of his theory he has another uh another part of his theory is that uh and i think this probably makes maybe more sense to canadians than it does maybe to americans but he says that Winnipeg is sort of like uh, looked down upon by a lot of it's sort of like um, there's really isn't it doesn't sound like there's a a U.S. equivalent to it, but it's sort of like, um, I don't know, think of your worst southern state. And it's kind of that like they're the butt of a lot of jokes. Oh, all right. So it's kind of like uh, the kind of like flyover states here. Yeah, he's like, but the because the they're often the butt of a lot of Canadian jokes. This movie is really an underdog story, and in its in its release and its reception is also an underdog story. And so he sort of thinks maybe that's part of the appeal. But generally speaking, he doesn't really have an explanation. He's like, I spent a ton of time with these people, went to all these conventions because they still do conventions, or at least they used to. I don't know. If there's do there's it. there yeah there's uh, Phantom Palooza is what it's called, and they've done it. I think they've done it twice in the two. Because this is very specific to win. Winnipeg, not just Manitoba, Winnipeg specifically, yeah. like just this one smallish city. Yeah, there's a website called phantompalooza.ca that I got a little bit of information from that it has a lot more um, uh, contemporary information in it. Like there's newspaper articles and there's photographs of flyers and stuff like, but it's mostly like one guy's anecdotal storytelling about like his, his experience and sort of like the sort of broader experience of Winnipeg. It's a really interesting website. It's a generational thing too. It's, you know, people who are now adults or who even have uh, like grandchildren at this point and kind of gets passed down. And of course it's kind of petering out because that's just what happens with trends. Um, but, but it's a generational thing. It's just, it's fucking fascinating to be like this one specific city in Canada loves this movie everywhere else. Nobody gives a shit. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Of course, nowadays uh, it's a, it's a cult smash. Like there's so many people who are, who are into this movie. I found this one on television one night and I had no idea yep. what it was, what I was even looking at, but I got into it a little, a little ways into it. And I'm like, okay, 
guy in a black leather suit, cool helmet. Like, what the fuck is happening? And it just gets weirder and weirder from there. I think I think because I think this got sold into I think it got sold as like part of a syndication package. Oh, it must have been probably right out of the gate because this did very very badly. It got pulled from the theater after like a week. Yeah, yeah. So I think it just got sold right into like a, a cheap package because I think a lot of people I remember seeing it on TV. I think a lot of people just remember seeing it either on cable or on like local channels. Yeah, just because it was probably yeah that's what it was. I was like on channel thirty eight, like one of the UHF stations, and I I remember I do I clearly remember picking it up during the scene when. Uh, beef, basically beef's death scene. And then for like from there. So basically around the middle of the movie is where I picked it up. And I was like, what the fuck am I watching? Uh, and I, I was captivated by it after that. It was a fucking amazing, but death records was originally called swan song in the script, but the- you know, who's going to be really upset about that. Led Zeppelin. Led Zeppelin. <laughs> yep. So uh, the production was sued by Led Zeppelin's manager who started their record label Swan Song shortly before the movie was released. And they shot basically the entire movie with Swan Song everywhere. And then they had to optically. Re- and you can tell, you can see that it's just painted over on all the sets. Yeah. So they optically replaced them with death records in post. And now that that has been pointed out to me, I had never really paid that close attention yeah. to that. You but, can see it. But now that it's been, now it's been pointed out, like there's a part, there's one part. It's when Swan addresses the press at the, at the airport where the yep. fucking scene, act, like the, the logo actually moves. And I'm like, oh God damn it. Now I'm never going to be able to unsee this. But yeah, the, the replacements are pretty crappy. Uh, also, the Juicy Fruits, the Beach Bums, and the Undead were all originally supposed to be played by different real bands, that being Shanana, the Stones, and the Who, but the budget couldn't. Which, well, your whole budget would have gone to that. <laughs> yes, that is a would. Weirdly, the one that they couldn't afford was Shanana. Shanana were huge. That's the thing. Because I'm guessing the Stones probably just said no. Probably. probably. And the Who probably were also like, yeah, give me a million fucking dollars or whatever. Yeah. But Shanana were like, nope, you can't afford it. And I'm like, Shana, not now. It, I'm guessing a lot of people probably do not know who Shana is, and there's a reason for that. <laughs> um, they are like a throwback band, they're in Greece, they're the band that plays the prom in Greece. Yeah. They were like a throwback doo band in the 70s, well, late 60s into the early 70s. Yeah, they were they were formed, they were formed in 1969. They performed because they played at Woodstock, they, they did right before the closing act, Jimi Hendrix. Yep. That's because Jimi Hendrix was a fan of theirs. Yep. He so when they first started performing, he caught them at some show and was like, it was like a big booster of them. And I believe he's the one who was like, these guys got to come down and play at fucking Woodstock. So yeah. They, now to be fair, Jimi Hendrix did a lot of drugs. <laughs> notorious, so, notorious LSD fanatic. I mean, you know, Sean and I, they were uh, very talented for what they were doing. I mean, they were yeah. obviously very good musicians. It was just they played a style of music that was a kind of throwbacky, and that is. I think maybe a good segue into what I want to talk about right, here. Hit it. Be- because I I was thinking, you know, uh, this is what, our fourth episode of this show? Yep. We've been doing uh, Bring Me the Axe for about a year. And you know, the, as I'm watching this show or this movie, I was thinking to myself, I it's to watch cult films or, you know, or, or exploitation. And, you know, we watch horror movies and horror movies are very accessible in terms of like what is what they're trying to convey uh, it's pretty obvious and it's pretty intuitive, you know, wh- wh- why you feel a certain way ab- about the movie, why you laugh, why you're afraid, you know, all that bullshit. It's very easy to understand. It, it operates on primal things, essentially. Uh, cult films operate in a much more complicated way. 
And they're a little bit harder to talk about. I'm, I'm, I'm watching the movie. And just if I was watching this just as a viewer, I thought, uh, I love this movie because I do. I think it's a great fucking movie. Watching it a little bit analytically um, and trying to kind of analyze it, I was stuck because I'm like, what the fuck is this movie? And it occurred to me that... You know, in in order to understand anything, really, you have to sort of any cultural texts, you have to understand the era that they come from. And and I think that is particularly true of this movie, because this comes out in what, 74. So it it gets uh, production probably starts in 73. And if you just look at the a six year period leading up to the release of this movie, you've got in 68, you've got the assassination of Martin Luther King. You have the Milai Massacre. You have Nixon winning the presidency. 69, you've got Woodstock, occupation of Alcatraz, Tate-LaBianca murders. Uh, jump forward a little bit into the 70s, 72, you have the terrorist tax hit the Olympics. You have uh, Equal Rights Amendment. 73, Arab oil embargo. Uh, Roe v. Wade, uh, you got Pinochet uh, and a couple other dictators in Latin America sort of taking over in military coups. You have the occupation of Wounded Knee is also in 73, and you end this in 74 with Watergate. That is seriously fucking heavy for a six-year period. Uh, it's a very bleak run for America. And I I mean, and I uh, I can tell you with some authority that this is one of the most tumultuous eras in American history, just generally. And so I think if you this all of this kind of uh, social upset and emotional turmoil, uh it explains the the kind of uh, push towards nostalgia, the rush for nostalgia that happens throughout the 70s. It kind of is exemplified by uh, Shanana, by uh, like stuff like Grease mm-hmm. um, and stuff like, uh, you know, kind of culminates with like happy days. It's this desire when you're, you're I mean, uh, if, if you know anything about nostalgia, you know that it comes from, originally comes from, uh, it was like a diagnosis that was given to soldiers in wartime who were just sort of so shell-shocked that they were trying to retreat into warm feelings of home. It's a little bit more complicated than that, but you know what I mean. Um, and so it makes sense that at this time, you have all these people that are like, I am so burnt. It's kind of like now, actually. It's so hard to sit and soak in all of this like political, uh, uh, kind of uh, horrible political agendas and just really like violence and, and just sort of... Um, uh, social disruption in this really awful way. And I think that explains why people were like, I want to go back and I want, I want to live in the fifties when everything was simple. And I think that also explains why there were so many goddamn movie musicals at this time. Cause there's a shitload of them. There are a fuckload. And I'm going to give you a few right now. And this is just a few of them. You've got filler on the roof, Jesus Christ, superstar, uh, obviously grace, you get the whiz, uh, Rocky horror picture show, uh, this is one of them. Uh, uh, Hair, Tommy, Cabaret. You've got movies where music is a huge part of it. It may not be the. It may not be a musical per se, but it, you know, like uh, what are some of those? Like Will, uh, Willy Wonka, mm-hmm. shit like that. Where it's like, and I think, I think you could argue that musicals are a pretty uh, comforting. They're a very familiar genre. It's a very safe genre. Because musicals in general are pitched to general audiences, so they're for younger people, so they're a lot safer. So it's like that's why you get this desire to go back to like musical theater 
And that's why there are so many fucking adaptations, like just weird shit, like Godspell and stuff like that. Oh, yeah. Not to mention the religious part of that. But I think that also explains why this movie doesn't do very well, because this is also a musical, but where those are all sort of trafficking in nostalgia uh, or trafficking in some kind of warm, fuzzy feelings or safer genres. Uh, this one is is a parody that's pretty cynical. And rather than letting those the viewer sort of escape that social turmoil, it really kind of revels in it. Yeah, I've got I've got a note a little ways into this. There's something that Swan says uh, about two thirds of the way into the movie that kind of lays bare the movie's entire sort of premise. Like on top of just kind of being like a goofy, silly '70s musical with kind of like gothic horror throwback, like callbacks in it. It's also sort of an, an indictment of money in art. And yeah, uh, because this is also when you get a lot the rise of arena rock when like people like Led Zeppelin and Rolling Stone. I mean, there's a reason why they were chosen for this. Oh, sure. The reason why Shout Out this, this is the same year treated like gods. This is the same year that we start to see a reaction against that. Like the Ramones first record comes out this year. The Clash uh, come out. I believe the Sex Pistols are no Sex Pistols are a couple of years later, but so next year after. Yeah, but uh, yeah, like it's. It, it, it makes a lot of sense that there's a, that, that this movie really clashes against all of that. And it also kind of winds down in, a, in, in sort of entropy. Like it, this does not have a happy end. Oh no, it, not, it exposes, not at all. It exposes that sort of like seamy underbelly of the music industry. Uh, that is, you know, pretty dark and pretty exploitive. And I, I think we talked a little bit about this when we did our horror roundup for uh, 2023. When I brought up that movie sick, the one that Kevin Williamson yeah, made yep. that should have been, you know, a huge hit. I mean, the guy wrote it and produced it. He's a fucking Titan when it comes to horror movies. He, he wrote scream for God's sake. And yet that movie didn't do well. And I think one of the reasons it didn't do well is that nobody wanted to kind of have to contend with the messy feelings, the emotions and the politics of COVID while we're still sort of sitting in it. And I think with this movie, nobody wants to have to when you're when you're coming through all of this awful social strife and stratification, nobody wants to have to confront that in a fucking movie musical, no matter how <laughs> great the songs are. Like, and so I think you get everybody watching this and being like, no, fuck this movie. I don't want to see this because that's what happened with Sick. I don't think anybody wanted to do that. And so you have a movie that's otherwise pretty watchable, uh, should have been a much bigger hit. But it really wasn't. It, it kind of was just like, uh, you know, just passed pass by everybody. Nobody really cared. Yeah. But I think the reason this becomes a cult film is that when enough time passes and we're no longer in that uh, political era or that sort of era of, of social. Yeah, upset, yeah, yeah. This because this movie, this movie's kind of cult revival really takes root in the 90s. Yeah. And the nineties, late eighties and early nineties. Yeah. Cause, cause also like the nineties, speaking of nostalgia, the nineties had a real hang up on the seventies. Yes. And indeed. you know, the eighties it's uh, basically nostalgia is essentially the, 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 uh, the dominant it's a generation, the, it's a, a generation before the dominant generation is always looking 20 years to the past. So like, you know, you saw that in the, in the eighties, all of a sudden everybody was really hot about like the sixties, which, you know, and we got, nostalgia in the same way but just without the movie musicals but like we got and because well, the wonder because years you, shit like that at the, at the same time yes because of what it allows you to do is 
idealize all the good parts without having to confront any of the messy parts because the 70s is a fucking mess. Oh, yeah. It's a goddamn so everything. I mean, goddamn nightmare. Civil rights. Yeah. Like black civil rights, uh, native civil rights, uh, gay rights, women's movement. Like these are all people who are fighting just to be treated like human beings. Like you can set all of that aside now. All of the corporate bullshit you can set like and pretty much everything that De Palma was trying to expose in a way that I think is a little bit. Uh, obnoxious like it's a little <laughs> cheeky yeah. which is like okay dude fuck you you're part of the problem well too, sure like did. yeah because the rest of my thought on this is uh because he couldn't get these bands his his yeah. fix was to recast the same band as each iteration of swan's groups which personally i think is a really genius move and a real it works but it's real it has a mocking tone that i don't like it's it well the thing is is i think that it's it's kind of him making a statement about the fundamentals of pop music in the 1970s yes and he may be right about that but he's also an asshole (laughs) and that's a bit of a problem but i think that's that explains a lot of this it explains why it becomes a cult movie is because once you have enough distance between the hard part of it and you know the the social uh, uh problems of it you can just sit down and enjoy the music the kitsch and the camp without getting bogged down and that's why it finds a cult because otherwise it's just too hard of a movie to watch uh, yeah i agree and i think i think that explains a lot of why uh this is, is such a cult a cult film now when it did so badly and i also think why it, you know it, it explains why it's not gonna last much longer if it's even still relevant at this point we'll talk about that much later but. yeah yeah uh so one last thought before we jump into it is um paul williams performed the hell of it on the brady bunch hour yeah i did i watched that <laughs> i did too a full three years after the movie came out because that fucking song is awesome. It's a hell of, man. it's a great fucking song. It's a really awesome way to kind of go out because it's it really is sort of like well, it's a song about the movie you just watched. <laughs> but yeah, it, it's dark. It is it is such you know, and I think this movie pokes at Paul Williams a little bit too. Yeah, I mean, not not him right, specifically, but sort of the, by casting him by doing that alone, it has things to say about. Who can be a rock star and who can't? Be? Yeah, because he is definitely not a rock star looking dude. No. There is a reason that he is a songwriter and not a rock star. I mean, he's also not a great singer. I like his voice a lot, but he's you know, in terms he, of pop music, it doesn't he, doesn't work. His that own well. music is the only thing that his voice really works for, which makes yeah. sense because you know it's it's him writing this stuff and sort of like singing it out and and transposing it. But yeah, his his voice—he has a very particular kind of voice, and it's—I don't know what what it's style? just. It is. I don't. It's. It you know what it such, is. It is so of an era. You know what it is. Is um. Do you, have have you ever heard of Skiffle? Mm, I don't think so. So so before the blues really reached England, the music that like every all of the sort of founding. British rock bands were listening to is this style called skiffle, which was this like English. uh, It's a little cabaret. It's a little folksy. It's a little, it's sort of like their version of American country music. It's performed with like washboards and fucking like a, like a jug band and shit. Like it's, it's, it's it's poor people music. (laughs) Basically. Yeah. Like, uh, I mean, that's just the blues. That's what country and blues is. Country and blues was the music of poor people and predominantly black. Yeah. But anyways, that like when, when he, the, the, the kind of foundational pieces of, of the hell of it, really reminds me of skiffle 
And uh, if you go up, you can just look it up on YouTube. You'll find it. Like like Paul McCartney. The foundation of white blues. <laughs> With this skinny blonde hair. Mm-hmm. So yeah, the Paul McCartney released a whole fucking record of it. It's it's very very. Hey, I'm gonna very. I'm gonna hit you with an unpopular opinion. Okay, fuck Paul McCartney. <laughs> I fucking hate the Beatles. You know who? You know what? George Harrison's the only good Beatle. Yeah, well, he's dead. Yep. Uh, look, before you dive into it, uh, obviously we said that this movie was not well received at all by Ooh, anybody. Yeah, let's hear I'm some. Let's hear some reviews. Hit you with some some great ones here. Uh, I, I pulled a bunch of them there. None of them are very good. They're all sort of across the board. You know, they, they, they don't, nobody likes the movie, but Vincent Canby's, yeah, this is one from Vincent Canby from New York times, Vincent Canby, uh, kind of a Titan of film criticism of the, uh, second half of the 20th century. It says almost any AIP beach picture or Vincent price horror film being the real thing is funnier. <laughs> Now, I think this also points to the fact that a lot of people didn't get what Brian De Palma was doing. Yeah. That this is a send up of of the sort of trajectory of music. And it's like I said, it's pretty cynical. Mm. Here's Gene Siskel's Gene. Oh, Siskel, good. My our boy, our boy Gene, Gene Siskel. Siskel. All right. The film is. Oh, fuck. I know, I know this one. Yep, because young people are beginning to recognize shock rock for what it is, a travesty of entertainment. Time has pulled the rug out from under the Phantom of the Paradise. Hey, Gene Siskel, fuck you. There, what's the, what's there? Some... You fucking self-righteous piece of shit. Get a goddamn sense of humor, I know, he's asshole. so humorless. Hey, what must it be like to have lived in his fucking life? Like, he seems so goddamn joyless. There's some line in that very review that's like, you know, you can't, you know, you got to be careful when you're joking about rock and roll because rock and roll itself is a joke. It's like, man, fuck off. It's this and this idea that you know with lowbrow things just aren't worth our time. And this goes back to what I was saying before. I think I don't remember what episode. It might have been the last uh, Fright Night, maybe. This idea of Gene Siskel and Roger Ebert being gatekeepers, like we'll be the ones to tell you what's real art and what's not. Hey, fuck off, I know, Gene Siskel. I know. I'm not interested in whatever it is you think is cool. You look like a look like you've been a 60 year old man your entire <laughs> fucking life. <laughs> Just came out like that. Yeah, yeah. Th- this was before they put him on TV and they started to feel very serious. Like what they were doing was important. But like, I don't know. Like man, at some point, at, when your editor goes, "Hey, we're gonna go send you to see this movie called Phantom of the Paradise." Paradise. Just say fucking no. Like go, yeah, or just go in and be like, "Well, I'm pretty sure I'm not going to like this movie, but maybe there's something about it that's fun. It's colorful, if nothing else." Yeah. But you know what it is? It's like I get that that argument a lot of like, "Well, Gene Siskel and Roger Ebert, they were really great writers." Well, Arthur Miller was a really great writer too. He was also a huge piece of shit and beat <laughs> his wife. I don't care if he's a good writer; he's still an asshole. Yeah. Yeah. On with the show. Yeah, I know. I know. I think I, I don't have any quotes from it, but I think Pauline Kale was was a little bit more charitable about, about her review of the movie. But yep. So here we go. We open on a title card bearing the logo of Death Records, a dead sparrow. And I, one of these days, I'm just going to fucking pull the trigger on it. I've wanted a t shirt of Death Records since I first saw the movie. It's. I mean- T public has got to have. Oh, there's a, there's a, I looked it up. There's a thousand of them and they all cost like 10 bucks. Like there's no reason not to do it. I'm just going to fucking do it one of these days. But uh, yeah, Rod Serling sets the pace. Why do you suppose Rod Serling does? Because he's not getting credit, which means he's probably not getting paid for it. Why do you suppose he did it? Uh, I don't know. He probably was friends with somebody and, you know, he's got a very recognizable voice and. Because this is not a big budget movie. I mean, you know, Rod Serling's not. 
super famous by 1974. I mean, he's always going to be famous, but he's not uh, the the uh, powerhouse that he was in the 60s. Yeah. He was also never taken very seriously in the 60s. So who no, knows? No, no, it's just it's that it's the voice. It's the Twilight Zone voice, and so he's he has an incredible yep, voice. Yep, and I, I spare no opportunity to tell people that we are related to him in a very very distant contrived way. But yep, why not? Yeah, it's fun. So, oh, my claim to fame, I'm about seven degrees related to Ron Serling. And they'll say, (laughs) so we learn that Swan is a musical mastermind, a musician and a producer, and every major pop music movement in the United States has him to thank. Now he's looking for something new to usher in the age of his ultimate rock palace, the paradise. Okay, Swan is uh, basically Phil Spector. Yes, so a, a more cartoonish and yet somehow uh, equally villainous version of uh, Phil Spector. Yep. So originally he was called Murder and all. He was originally he was called Spector. Yeah. Yeah. So this is the story of the man who made it, the girl who sang it, and the monster who stole it. I mean, it's sort of that, I guess. <laughs> uh, that is the movie in a nutshell right there. If you're on a bunch of cocaine, sure. So we cut to a performance by Swan's band, The Juicy Fruits. And we jump right into the movie's first musical number. And the song is called Goodbye, Eddie. And it tells the story of a hard luck singer named Eddie who finds himself in a tough spot when his sister, Mary Louise, needs it. <sighs> I don't understand the, the accent. Uh, I don't get the, the accent. Because they... I'm I'm what so uh the song is basically like, like a Jan and Dean uh you know uh, yeah a, it's a, a it's a bad boy and then something happens and he dies some bullshit like that uh it's very kind of like standard 50s yeah so it's it's a thing in, in the fit so in the 50s there were there was a little wave of of in the late 50s of these rock ballads about like the tragic death of a cool dude and they get parodied a lot in the 70s and 80s they're all really silly um, but they were, it's rebel without a cause. It's the it's the musical version of rebel. That's what, that's cause. exactly what it is. And there's a couple of examples of this are, uh, last kiss by the Cavaliers leader of the pack by the Shangri-Las and tell her I love her by Ray Peterson. You can look them up and it's all the same thing where there's a bit in the middle where the music kind of slows and a guy does a, like a narration about how the main character of the story gets killed in a drag race or a motorcycle accident, now, or there's a car. There's one about an air version. Yeah, yes. <laughs> In this version, he does it, and he does it in an accent. And the accent starts off, I was like, is this an Italian accent? And then it goes on for a couple seconds, and I was like, oh, no, it's Latino. <laughs> and it is super offensive. Yeah. yeah. So, And then one of them just, like, grabs a girl from the, uh, from the oh, audience yeah. and is, like, sexually assaulting Oh, yeah, yeah. The, the Juicy Fruits uh, actively assault the audience as they're performing. Because they also beat up another dude, but uh, yeah, it's like what if Gigi Allen was the singer for a for a duo? Shanana fe- featuring yeah. Gigi Allen. So to pay for it, I'd buy that. Record. Yeah, so so she needs an operation to pay for it. Eddie kills himself in spectacular fashion in order to send his record to the top of the charts, supplying his mother with a wealth of cash to pay for the operation. And so, uh, yeah, that's that's basically that's it. So outside the club, we see our hero Winslow Leach. Smearing some wheat paste over the Juicy Fruits banner, introducing himself as the piano player. You know why you know what that is? Uh, because of Henry Rollins. Yep. <laughs> because of getting the van. Yep, because of getting the van, which I have read a whole bunch of times and listened to a whole bunch of times. It still remains one of my favorite books. So, uh, yeah, back inside, the Juicy Fruits wrap it up before a mostly ambivalent crowd, and they await approval from the disembodied hands of the man himself, Swan, who gives them the old slow clap. 
And uh, up in Swan's box, we then get a first-person session of Philbin, Swan's Heavy, uh, lamenting the loss of an unnamed singer that he fostered to stardom, now having left them for a life of altruism. And he says, look, she was more than just a piece to me. And I thought, what a beautiful thing. <laughs> I mean, my note actually says, Jesus Christ. <laughs> Philbin's a real, because he's a classy dude. He also dude. says something very, very offensive that I am not going to repeat. Well, Jesus Christ, which one? Because basically it's, it's like a five. Uh, it's about Vietnamese. Orphans. Oh, Jesus Christ. That's right. He does not call them Vietnamese. No, he doesn't. He calls them something much more. A very terrible thing. Uh, And I love being offensive, but not that. Yeah, we don't go that far. Not like this. (laughs) Philbin, by the way, is named for Mary Philbin, who played Christine in the 1925 Phantom of the Opera with Lon Chaney. So behind them, Winslow sets up at the piano, begins to play to a mostly empty club. This catches Swan's attention, and he he declares that his music is the exact thing that the paradise needs. So I want to point out here that uh, Winslow's voice is uh, Paul Williams. No, 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 no. He's Paul Williams. Paul 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 Williams is Winslow. Beef is Ray Kennedy. No, no. Paul Williams is is the phantom after he fixes his voice. But these parts up to that point are actually William. Because I I have a feeling that they're trying to say something with the, the use of these voices because these are people uh, Ray Kennedy again was not known as a singer he was known as uh, he was if, if he's known for anything he was known as like a songwriter uh, mostly if he wrote a bunch of Beach Boys songs yeah. and I think it's really interesting that the premise of this movie is essentially it, it's Phantom of the Opera it's the shit gets stolen uh, you know Winslow's thing gets stolen you'll get there but I think it's really interesting that he uses these people uh, he gives them different singing voices and they are they're specifically people who are not known as singers. Yeah. I think that's a really interesting choice. It's a, it's a, uh, if it was done intentionally and I can't imagine it wasn't done intentionally, it's very clever. Yeah. Like I, I mean, I don't know. It was probably just a matter of convenience. Uh, Kennedy's a weird choice. Yeah. Like, I mean, he was probably, he was probably, um, an, at least an acquaintance of Paul Williams, and he was probably uh, more more important than anything. He was probably affordable. Yeah. Well. Yeah. yeah. But anyways, it's a it's a meandering piece uh, called Faust that sets up Winslow's drive for something more than the life of the starving artist that he leads. And Winslow, he is giving you some like real serious like Ray Charles Joe Cocker performance <laughs> at that piano. He's, he's yeah, and he's he is sliding all over that piano. He bench, is moving like crazy, up and, down the and keys. it's it's a really great sh- way that they do it because the ca- the camera just circles the piano as he does it, and he is basically doing uh, uh, John Belushi as Joe Cocker. <laughs> yeah, that is exactly what it is. Uh, so, um, Swan sends uh philbin out to steal the music which he does at winslow's cramped apartment and he tells winslow that swan wants to produce the music but he needs a lot of work to be a star and with winslow properly scammed he leaves with the written cantata faust which is an i mean you can see all like all of this camera work is so italian uh well yes because he's i mean he's just stealing from all of his favorite guys and so but i what i i think what i always like and i'm not a a brian de palma fan i like a bunch of his movies just fine i think carrie's a fucking great movie um but i'm not a big fan but i like that he 
where you later get a lot of people that were like, oh, he's influenced by Dario Argento. No. No, no, Brian no. De Palma, Brian De Palma goes for the fucking deep cut every time. Yeah. I mean, obviously he's, um, geez, uh, Fellini is obviously a huge influence, but like he's really, he is studied in the ways of these fucking cinematographers whose names like we barely know. Yeah. Um, the, yeah, honestly, it's, he's also a huge fan of like Jean-Luc Godard. Yeah. And so there's a lot of French new wave in his style. Like we're going to, when we, when we get to the beach bums scene, that in particular is practically oh, yeah. his fucking split screen that he is so well known for. That's just French yeah. filmmaking. Yeah. So, um, yeah. So let's see Philbin, uh, he, uh, being the shallow asshole that he is completely underestimates Winslow's passion, dismissing the entire piece, seeking only the hits for the juicy fruits to perform, which sets Winslow off demonstrating that he's got a bit of repressed anger going on there. Uh, also, and he goes, he, he rushes back in and I thought, why does Swan live in a public library? <laughs> what is this building? It's, it's a, it's a very fancy building. Uh, a cantata, by the way, is a piece of music intended to be sung rather than to be played with musical instruments. Which is interesting because it is very clearly played with musical instruments. <laughs> yep. A little bit of singing, a lot of musical instruments. Yep. There is a lot of piano in this. Yep. So uh, a month later, Winslow has heard nothing from Swan. He goes directly to Death Records to speak to him. And it's a real Clockwork Orange looking set too. Mm-hmm. And the receptionist there flips through an index of names like Alice Cooper. David Geffen and Bette Midler, and she lands on Winslow's name, revealing that he is never to be seen, has him chased out silent film style by Swan's denim security. Which has got to be a a reference to the Hells Angels and the Rolling Stones. Hells Angels y. uh, Yeah. Like hiring thugs to do your security. Because what is it? Gimme Danger was done by Godard, wasn't it? Uh, Gimme Shelter. uh, Gimme Shelter. That's the one. Gimme Danger is the one. I thought it was American. I can't remember who did it. One of them. Uh, it's a oh, deeply I mean, upsetting documentary to watch. Yeah, I don't. I don't know. I I, I must be thinking of something else. Uh, but uh, yeah, so he gets chased out later that evening. He follows Swan's limousine to his home, the Swanage, and he in the in the public library. The, <laughs> and he hops the wall, uh, set to the next song. Never thought I'd get to meet the devil, which informs us of what Winslow is doing. And so, and again, it's that it's that kind of rollicking piano. It's almost like Joplin esque piano, but the yeah, it's a little. It's a little content oh, is dark. Yeah, it's a little ragtimey. It's that skiffle yep. shit again. But yeah, so uh, inside Swan's mansion, he finds dozens of women all rehearsing the same piece of music from Faust. And my note says, why are all these women so terrible? Yeah, so all of the ridiculous voices that you hear in this scene are meant to be different, talentless hopefuls, but they're actually the same actress. It's uh, Betty Buckley, who auditioned for Phoenix, mm. but she shows up a couple later, uh, a couple of years later as Miss Collins and Carrie. Yep. She's also yeah. in a lot of TV movies. She's a great actor. Yeah, yeah. Uh, there's there's people in this movie sort of appear later on in other De Palma movies, but they, they do like behind the scenes shit. Like Sissy Spacek worked on this. Sissy Spacek was the set decorator on this only because her boyfriend was the actual set decorator. Uh, so she just kind of helped out. She did it. There was uh she did something else with him too. I think right before Carrie. Yeah. But uh, let's see. So among these ladies is uh, a very talented singer named Phoenix. And she's rehearsing the song from before the one Faust and he, uh, Winslow gravitates to her and helps her sing it as it's intended to be heard. When she asks how he knows the song, he tells her that he's the songwriter and he's informed that Swan is going to open the paradise with it. It still hasn't dawned on him that he's been ripped off though. 
Now, the I think the the way that these women are presented are really is is pretty interesting because it it can be read in a couple of ways, and it can be read as. Uh, if it's intentional, it is sort of um, uh, Brian De Palma showing that this is how the record industry sort of rips people off. This is how it undermines women. They're all because they're all they are shitty characters. These are all like desperate, awful women who are real bitches <laughs> with the exception of Phoenix. So it can be read in that way of like, this is that like, it just cycles through women. It doesn't care who they are. Now, I don't think Brian De Palma thought that. I think this is an example of Brian De Palma's misogyny because the way these women are sort of portrayed is these fucking shrews. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Cause they like, Oh, because also the Phoenix is the only one who seems to be a little naive about what's going on there. There. The rest of them are all like, can't you sing on your back? Pretty much. Yeah. And then, and he is Winslow. He is just up on her. Oh yeah. Yeah. He gets right in her face. It's a tight shot. Also, my note just says so many wigs, so many, <laughs> so it, many wigs. Is it a scene. wig? Yes, it yes, yes, multiple, yes, and yes. Multiple wigs. A lot of wigs. You know, who's not wearing a wig? Paul Williams. Nope. He's, no, he's yes. fabulous hair. He's a, it is very, it is silky. It is, uh, has bouncy. Golden, I guess. Is it volume? It, is. it has volume. Flaxen. Flaxen, <laughs> I think is a term. <laughs> I know nothing about hair. Uh, so, uh, Paul hey. Williams and his flaxen hair. <laughs> a, a memoir. La, locks of gold. <laughs> so, he's, he's, uh, <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh, yeah. Oh, so Paul Williams. He's taken uh, by Phoenix's uh, talent and he wants to help her get on the chorus. But when it comes time for the women to audition, he's thrown out again. Yeah, uh, it should be said. Uh, I don't know how we're f- supposed to feel about Winslow. Winslow also sucks. Yeah. He's also a fucking creep. I think we're supposed to sympathize. Well, he's okay. He's really fucking creepy and awful. He's obsessed. He's terrible. It really kind of comes down to how you feel about the Phantom and Phantom of the Opera because I mean, it's a have you re- I mean, it, have you read it? Yes, yes. I'm I'm very familiar with it. He's a bad guy from the start. Like there's no Yeah, he's not a great person. No, no. So so that's that's really it. But there's He's the guy that we're supposed to side with, so they're they're putting him in a light that's like, yeah, he's not that bad, right? But yeah, he is. He is. He's annoying, you know. Yeah, he's sleazy. He's obnoxious. He's kind of shitty. Yeah, because he is also sort of singularly focused on his himself and his own career, his well, own thing. Yeah, so that's what that song. And I think that's the difference, though, is because the Phantom in I, I can't remember the actual guy's name in the in the story. He is obsessed with the music and with Christine. Yeah. In this, we are uh, supposed to understand that he is obsessed with Phoenix, but he's really not obsessed with Phoenix. Phoenix, as a character, Phoenix and Jessica Harper all feel secondary. They're just sort of there to help facilitate this war between Winslow and uh, Paul Williams. Yeah. That's it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Whereas in Phantom, it, she is very much the, the sort of focus of his obsession. He has written the music for her specifically. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but there's actually a song in there in, in this that kind of addresses Winslow Leach as a character, it's the song special to me. That's the one that she auditions with. That, yeah. That's really all, all about that. And it's, it's uh, kind of ironic that that's the one where he's most taken by her. Uh, and, but the whole, I mean, from the start, when he shows up at the audition, 
the whole point is that he is supposed to perform this whole thing by himself. Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and yet, the, and later on, it's just like, no, no, she is the only one who can sing my music. And it's like, well, actually, uh, five minutes ago, you said you were the only one who could sing your music. Now that you can't sing, now it's important that she's well, a part here's of the, the thing. Here's the, here's the thing. By that point, his voice is destroyed. Yes. So, yeah. Uh, so, yeah. What ends up happening is after he gets thrown out, Seconds later, Phoenix comes running out, revealing that Philbin is just in there fucking all the women. Yep. And they That's go the, through the tiny, the tiny, little tiny doorway. <laughs> little doors, which because for a really long, is tiny. for a really long time, I was like, what is with these sets? And then I was like, oh, okay. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Paul, Paul Williams is a very short man. He's probably like five foot four or something like that. But then yep. the, what is going on in that room? I don't like it. <laughs> nope. Uh, so a uh, little, a uh, little later on, there's a pile of women lazing around at Swan's place. Uh, plus one really butch lady that turns out to just be Winslow and drag trying to get a meeting. With dressing Swan. too. Yeah. So when Swan emerges in the sweet Nehru jacket, he has Winslow thrown out again with a real hard F slur. Yep. He says, Get this fag out of here. Yep. And I'm going to tell you, as someone who uses that word regularly, <laughs> I still find this scene offensive. It's, it's, it's not it's not good. It's not good. So because uh, on one hand, I'm like, I get what you're doing. But on the other hand, it's like you're the one saying that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So outside the swanage. Winslow is found by a pair, which by the way, I wish that people would start doing that again, which where they, where they name their house after oh, them love and then they throw a edge after it. Cause like, um, the guy, one of the founders of the jet propulsion laboratory had a place, he, Jack, Jack Parsons, he had a place called the Parsonage. That's yeah. He also awesome. blew himself up. It's blew crazy. Himself up. Oh yeah. 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 Uh, or I, did he? He's, you know, he blew himself up. He's me. I'm a big fan of that guy. Yeah, it's pretty crazy. What I uh, I am a big fan of just naming, like, uh, uh, what is it? Ma is it Manderley? Is that in Rebecca? What the house is called? <laughs> yes. Last night I dreamed of Manderley. Yep. Which is how the the wonderful book begins. Fucking great. Uh, I'm gonna say right now this interaction. So when he gets thrown out, uh, the the thugs kind of rough him up, and he's wearing a dress, and they throw him out, and they throw him into the bushes, and the cops show up, and I think this is a particularly interesting scene. On one hand, it's interesting because one of the it's either one or both of the cops are black, mm -hmm. and they're one of very few people of color we see in this movie at all. Mm, oh, that's right. And it's interesting that they're cops, and it's uh, this is a scene that is particularly complicated because De Palma's playing it for laughs. However, this is <laughs> the shit. The shit happens all the time in yeah, real life. This is, it still happens. For comedy. Mm -hmm. And this is basically 1974. This is what would have happened a lot is the cops would find someone beaten and bleeding in the bushes. I know a thing or two about this. I've written quite a lot about this. Uh, and this and they would basically do this. And it's funny that he's treating it as a joke. And it's sort of like. Well, that's because Brian De Palma sucks, everybody. <laughs> but it's just interesting that he would go to this extent to mock uh, what is ostensibly a queer person in this situation. It's like, again, it's that like you seem to have a, 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 a very strange interest in this that extends beyond the usual kind of like, hey, hey bro joke. Yeah. Yeah. It's very odd. It's a little bit. It's a little bit of that. Um that same like director telling on himself stuff that we, we saw really in, in delivery like, boys. Yeah. It's like the, the lady doth protest a lot yeah. here. 
Yeah. And that lady, Brian De Palma. <laughs> Dame Brian De Palma. Yep. So, uh, yeah. So, anyways, what they do is uh, they- Just for the record, uh, as far as we all know, Brian De Palma's not gay. <laughs> no, he's uh, he's been married to several but women. But he does have a very, very odd interest in, in sort of non-normative sexuality, I guess, for lack of a better term. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, what ends up happening is, yeah, the cops, they plant some heroin on him, just like Swan said there would be, and then they arrest him. And then he's found guilty, sentenced to life, and sent to Sing Sing. <laughs> Get it? Yep. And again, it's that planting of drugs. Is, and again, it's very weird to have a black actor doing this as a cop, because this is a thing that white cops did to black men all the fucking time. Yeah. It's just very, it's so strange to be like, hey, isn't this funny, everybody? Like, uh, no. Yeah. No, it's not funny. It's not. It's actually a huge fucking problem. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, Sing Sing is one of the two prisons implied wherever someone says they're being sent up the river, uh, specifically the phrase up shit's creek because of the sheer volume of literal shit that is dumped yep. into the Hudson River. Uh, there's a really funny. And it was literally up the river. Yep. And so there's a, there's a really funny dollop podcast about it. I recommend it. So uh, once inside, Winslow is volunteered for a dental research program where they pull all of his teeth and replace them with metal teeth. And uh, the dude standing next to Winslow in the warden's office is an actor named Shelley Desai. Uh, this is probably one of his first roles. He plays Charlie Kelly's landlord in It's Always Sunny, and he's one of my favorite characters. It's a, this The teeth scene is real hard because, again, it's one of those moments where it's like, you know shit like this actually happened. <laughs> so, like, again, you're playing it for laughs and like, damn, man. Yep. But this whole scene, this from the moment he goes to jail, that whole part has a distinct Roger Corman feel to it. Because didn't Brian De Palma, he came from the, the Corman school, did he not? I don't know, actually. But I wouldn't be surprised if he did, because like basically all of that kind of new Hollywood guy, all of those new yeah. Hollywood guys basically sprung from the Corman uh, machine. Yeah. Oh, uh, you know what we got to do? We got to do uh, targets at some point. Oh, shit. Yeah. I just got the criterion of that. The movie's real good. Yeah, it is. So um, what ends up happening is six months later, Will Winslow is on the manufacturing line in prison. He's making toys. When he hears a radio broadcast announcing that Swan has done it again with a new hit, he'll be opening the paradise with the juicy fruits, performing his latest hit, Faust, which sends him into a rage. And then he- I mean, honestly, are the juicy fruits the right band for this? No. No, they're not. We're the gonna- juicy fruits fucking suck. No, we're going to hear him in, uh, again in a minute performing one of the pieces, and they have to modify it in a way that really blows. So he packs himself up in a box, and he escapes in a delivery truck. Hilarious. Yeah, it's pretty funny. And then he breaks- Real, real old time. <laughs> it's, it's, he, he, these bits, he does it a little bit with that kind of like uh, jaunty piano music. It's very clearly like uh, uh, Keystone Cops kind of silent film yeah. comedy bits. But I think that's what makes this very clever because what he is essentially doing is charting uh, cultural trends along the way. So we start off with that 50s doo thing and we get the sort of goofy madcap uh, AIP sort of uh, uh, teen comedy stuff. And then it slowly builds into this really dark narrative that again, starts to feel very Italian, but this is still part of the madcap hilarity of it all. Yep. So he breaks into death records in a rage. He turns the tables on security and he breaks into death records, manufacturing plant where it's filled with boxes of juicy fruits records. Now he's cornered by the cops. He gets caught in the press, which burns the juicy fruits record into one side of his face. Horribly mutilated and now without a voice, he tosses himself into the Hudson River to escape the police. 
And we get a big swirly newspaper headline that says Mad Toonsmith Bites Bullet. Yeah. Now, here's the thing about me. I love these fucking terrible headlines that were real, <laughs> like witty and quippy. If anyone ever has the time, look up a newspaper from Boston in the 30s and 40s called the Midtown Journal. It was run by one man who wrote all of the articles himself under various names, and they all have these long fucking titles <laughs> that are real zingers. It's hilarious. It's, now, it's kind of like extremely the old... homophobic, <laughs> but... <laughs> It's kind of like the old uh, Rochester police log. Have you ever you read it? The, yep. <laughs> fucking poetry. But And it was, I just, I love that when they would just, you know, you, you don't have much to say. Let's just have fun with it. <laughs> now we're having fun with it at someone else's expense. But hey, you know, it's the 50s. What are you going to do? What, what's life without a little laughter? Yeah. Yeah. Um, let's see. Oh, yeah. So that, that plant was a real place. So that was the ideal toy manufacturing plant. And that press was a real, like, press for like a manufacturing some sort of toy and so when he put his head in there that press could was was designed to go like all the way and close and you know it would smash now your- it has foam stampers on it yep and they, they put look, these man it's the 70s you are trusting your life to brian fucking de palma they put these um so basically they put these metal chocks in there so that it couldn't close all the way but when they did the take the chocks broke like shattered and uh, uh, Finley actually had his head like pressed in this thing, very nearly crushed his head. Hollywood. So yeah, now presumed who's going to pay that bill? Hollywood. <laughs> so presumed dead, Winslow emerges from the river, drags himself into Swan's Rock Palace, the Paradise. Once inside, he heads to wardrobe. Pulls a sweet leather getup off the rack. And a cool. This is where the movie starts to feel really confusing a little bit because you're like, "What the fuck it, is happening?" It does. It does go like yada yada yada. Like it zips through a few points. It starts probably- to take shape around this point, but like the lead up to this is just like, uh, "How do we get there? How do we get there?" Uh, he sticks his head in a press. Uh, Kablamo! He's dead. Throws himself in a river. Uh, puts himself in a box. That's right, how he gets right. out of jail. So like, what? He he cocaine. Is, he gets beat up. He gets sent to, sentenced to jail. He spends six months there. He escapes. He gets smashed up, and then he breaks into uh, uh, the paradise. This all happens across like three minutes of, of running time. <laughs> it's like it's really just like fired out of a fucking cannon. How do we get there? Who knows? Who cares? Yeah, who gives Let's a just shit? Get there. So yeah, uh, so yeah. He pulls uh, the leather outfit and a cool owl helmet from the rack above. And thus, the Phantom is born. I will say, though, all of this, it is, this movie is extremely stylish. And I mean, like, uh, cinema, cinema, cinematographically, that's a hard word to spit out. Yeah, it's like saxophonist. Uh, it, it is a lot like that, actually, <laughs> <laughs> in that it is nothing like that. <laughs> uh, I, just, I, just, I, I wanted an excuse to say that. De Palma would have, like, if this was 10 years later, he would have been fucking huge in music videos. He would have been David Fincher. Yeah. I wonder if he has directed a music video. Because, like, plenty of, plenty of, like, Hollywood directors had gotten around to that. Like, I mean, even, even, uh, uh, shit, uh, The Exorcist, Sorcerer Guy, uh. William Freakin. William Freakin. Like, he did music videos, too. What did he do? He did, uh, Laura Branigan's Self-Control is the one. Ah, oh, Jesus. Not even a good one. It's a fucking, it's a decent video. That's a good song, man. It's a good song. So, yeah. Uh, now, um, I think this is when we start to see how uh, 
William Finley is really, this is when you really start to see how good he is. He is fucking because badass. Up to this point, he plays this kind of sniveling, whiny piece of shit, but he really starts to get like, he plays wild and manic and crazy in a really great way. I love also, I love his maniac scream. Yes. That, and that helmet, if that did not influence, what's the fucking movie with the owl? Jesus Christ. Uh, we are just Michel not- Suave. Uh, the stage right. Yeah. If I, it feels like it has a very, I mean, obviously in, in stage fright, it's a big, an actual giant owl head, but like it, it has that kind of like big animal, like menacing animal look to it. Yeah. I, you know what? You might be onto something. Cause the rest of I've like that. I, I don't particularly care for that movie, but I am, oh, obs- no, it's not I am obsessed with what that fucking play is supposed to be about. And it nothing. is, it's supposed to be about absolutely <laughs> fucking nothing. It is, it is just like, it is full of just bizarre scenery that could have been very much at home in this. Listen, movie. Michelle Suave, God love him. Man made one good movie. <laughs> yeah. So uh, it's not that one. <laughs> you know what? It also, looks like uh you ever see planet of the vampires yeah oh yeah yeah, yeah. like their helmets yeah yep so uh yeah so now as the juicy again italian both italians yep as the juicy fruits perform a modified rendition of faust retitled upholstery and said to and now they are uh, beach they're the they're they're, they're essentially the beach yeah the group though they're called the juicy fruits in the credits they're called the beach bums so because they keep changing their name yeah but the band remains the same. Yeah. Hey. And, and, and they set, uh, so it's set to a Beach Boys thing. The Phantom plants a bomb, which ticks to the time signature of the song inside of a car prop intended for the performance. And now, so- I think this is interesting because this is where we start to see that um, Phil Spector, the, the specter of it all. Because for people who do not know, Phil Spector was uh, notoriously maniacal when it came to producing. These, essentially, the band is like, hey, man, I don't think we should do this. This is starting to feel like weird and a little dangerous, I think, maybe. And the guy's just like, fuck it. Get out there. Take drugs. Go perform your thing. And that is essentially what Phil Spector would do. And if they wouldn't do it, he would point a gun at them. Yeah, yeah. Just ask the Ramones. Yep. Uh, yeah, like this, this – this sound in particular is very uh, pop music maximalism, which is kind of Spectre's whole thing. Well, yeah, I mean that was Pet Sounds. I mean uh, that's the Pet Sounds is the wall of sound, yeah. and it is why that album is really, really incredible. Yeah. But it is you start to see the abuse of uh, musicians, essentially the abuse of like creative people for profit, and this is where it starts to show itself. Yeah. Uh, so also this is where this also this scene is essentially beat for beat. It's the opening from Orson Welles's touch of evil. Mm-hmm. And I think what, uh, what's it? Philbin. Is that the guy's name? Yeah. I think this is when he says, who wants nostalgia anymore? Yes. Yep. It's a great line. Or no, no, no. Uh, Swan says that a little bit later on oh, after, he says, after, yeah, after, after he kills, after he kills the juicy fruits. So, uh, this is kind of, this is also where we see the De Palma sort of signature split screen. Yep. There's a lot of business happening on both I think sides. This is the first time he does it, isn't it? It might be. And it's, and it's really well done because it's one of those deals where it's, it's not two independent scenes. It's just two cameras at different angles capturing yeah. different things. And they start to bleed into one another. So you can sort of see some shit happening in the background of one side of the screen. While- I mean, he perfects it in the, in the prom scene in Carrie where it is used to incredible effect, yeah. but it, you see it here and it's, it's essentially the same thing. It's just the scene is not intense. Yeah. And so as the song draw, uh, draws to a close, the bomb explodes, killing the juicy fruits as Swan watches from the opera box and the Phantom watches from the rafters. 
And that's when he he turns to the first time and he like screams at the sky like enjoy. It's fucking awesome. And so Swan reti- retreats to a hidden room in the paradise to view uh, footage of the rehearsal. And he spots the Phantom in his hiding spot. And as he leaves, the Phantom attacks, unable to speak. And Swan knows who he is right from the get go. And so he offers the Phantom. Oh, right. This is where he says, "Who wants nostalgia?" Yes. Yeah, so he offers him a bargain. He can give him his voice back and a means to create, but they have to work together, inviting him to the auditions. And he says he's gonna. He's going to put together a new band and uh, basically the, the Phantom objects to the to the Juicy Fruits because they're just a fucking novelty act. And he's like, who wants nostalgia anymore? And and so. And th- I mean, Paul Williams, I, I, this is why I think he's sort of underrated as an actor, because he plays this character who is supposed to be very charming and alluring. And he is. But he also has this menace to him. And he is a tiny man. Yeah. With beautiful flaxen hair. <laughs> <laughs> that that hair, God! I'm gonna work that in as often as I can. <laughs> yeah. Oh man, maze-like in its consistency. God, it is so it is bouncy and gorgeous. <laughs> <laughs> so the phantom now flees to the shadows. Now the next day, the phantom watches the auditions from the opera box with Swan as a group of women perform the song "Special to Me." Among them is Phoenix. Oh no! The other thing he says before they switch off to that is he said he. Uh, I think like. He essentially gets like Winslow uh, to agree to like play along. Yeah. Right. Is that when this happens? Essentially. Yeah. And he says, tasty Winslow, tasty. <laughs> oh, no. That's what he that. gives him. That's what he gives him the music. No, okay. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. Among these women is, is Phoenix and the Phantom insists oh, right. that she's the girl. And so this is, this is one of my favorite songs in the entire thing. Jessica, I Har- don't Jessica, know how I feel about this Jessica Harper has got a great voice. She feels, and I think the more that I think about it, the more I think this is probably her leaning into the character, but she feels very awkward. Like even the way she moves and dance, her like, dance there's not is a lot of fluidity to this. It feels very uncomfortable. Her dance is very like jerky, steppy. It's, yeah, it's, it's very stilted. And it's like, this doesn't feel sexy. This doesn't feel like this feels like Linda Ronstadt. Not only the song, the song is obviously written for her. It feels like it should have been her, like someone who knows how to move as a musician. Yeah. In this sort of like very fluid, sexy way. And she is not doing it. There's a, there's a mix of that because they're like when, when De Palma f- shoots this, this performance, she looks directly at the camera, which you don't, mm-hmm. you know, you don't do that in movies, you know? You well, that's why it feels so style. That's why I said earlier, like it, it, there are moments where I'm just like, this guy could have been really big in music videos because it's very stylish. Yeah. But, uh, this song, which is, I think the French new wave influence for sure. Yeah. This song is, a, is basically about everything that Winslow has lost in his obsession for stardom. And so now, which makes me wonder who wrote the song. Uh, well, it was supposed to be Winslow, you know? Right. So why would he have written it before? Uh, well, maybe the, this, his, his life is now becoming a reflection of his music. Also, are the rooms in this movie smaller to make Swan look bigger? Yes. I thought so. Yes. Cause that's why every it's time. It's a force it, perspective. That's ve- there's a lot of force perspective in this that are really fucking cool. It's force perspective that nobody else is expected to play along with. Cause everybody mm-hmm. else is like ducking under like the low doorways and shit. But or like, yeah. Even when, like when we're supposed to be looking from Swan's perspective, like even if it's like at, uh, you know, William Finley's a pretty tall guy yeah. and it is right in the cameras, right in his face. It's right on top of him. It's like very much like, this little man with beautiful flaxen hair is like really dominating you. Yeah. 
Yeah. It's very cool shit. It's very cool. So now, in a special room built just for the Phantom, he performs Faust on the equipment provided by Swan. There we go. And so tasty. Yep. Tasty Winslow. So tasty. The Phantom now sings by way of an electronic voice box that's plugged into a seriously gnarly synthesizer. So that whole setup is a synthesizer called Tonto. Uh, and it still exists today. Offensive. Offensive name. Yeah. Uh, it still exists today in a music museum in Canada. If you're into synthesizers, it's a real achievement of analog electronics. It's fucking Canadians. Yeah. Doing it for the people. Uh, well, they didn't build it. It was built by uh, some. No, but they're preserving it oh, because they appreciate the past. Yeah. And the curved design makes the whole thing look like something from the future, from the point of view of the 70s. Uh, this thing was actually used on records by Stevie Wonder, Weather Report, the Isley Brothers, and the Doobs. Yeah. <laughs> you, can, you can keep that last one. Thank you very much. <laughs> Not now, boy. The Coast Guard's playing the Doobs. <laughs> Uh, nothing like middle-aged men <laughs> laughing about jokes from the nineties. Uh, this is a really great moment here because as, you know, as Paul Williams is fucking with the, you know, Swan's fucking with the, the audio to like get the voice, just right. The modulation just right yep. for Winslow. He eventually hits it and he says something like perfect. It sounds perfect because it sounds like him. his voice. <laughs> yeah. I, lo- I, I do. I love that. Okay. Like, this movie is very, very clever. Mm-hmm. It's mean in a lot of ways, but it is very clever. Yeah. Uh, uh, also, the location of this scene is, uh, is at the stu- a studio in Los Angeles called the record uh, the record plant. Uh, it's legendary. Still studio. there. Yep. Still kicked out some uh, rock and roll heavy hitters. Uh, Jimi Hendrix's Electric Ladyland, Mountains Climbing, which is one of the best fucking records ever recorded. Kiss's Love Gun and Prince's Purple Rain. Look, I, I like how you said Mountain is one of the best records ever recorded. And then you're like, oh, and also Prince's Purple Rain. Maybe you've heard <laughs> of it. It doesn't matter. It's not important. It's not like the greatest top five fucking records ever made. But let me ask you this. Is Mississippi Queen on Purple Rain? No, it's not. No, but there are nine other songs that are just <laughs> as fucking good, actually better. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, as the Phantom plays, Swan manipulates the voice from the board. The engine room tilt sounds like Swan singing. So now, uh, Swan and the Phantom talk about Phoenix. The Phantom intends for Phoenix to be his new voice, and Swan wants the Phantom to stop terrorizing the paradise. Understandably, the Phantom doesn't trust him, but Swan drops a massive contract on the Phantom to help him learn to trust him. But the legalese clearly states that Swan can do whatever the hell he wants to the Phantom and with his music, and Winslow signs the contract in blood like a normal person. Now, this is very much like this is like direct commentary on the music industry. Oh, yeah. yeah, yeah. How people got fucked out of out of money, basically, because they're like, yeah, don't worry about it. Just sign it. Just yeah. sign it. You'll be fucking. And, and, and yeah, like there were these there's a there's something earlier on when when Philbin is complaining to Swan about that, like singer that they lost. There were like people that l- labels tried to sign to like lifetime contracts and yeah. shit like that. And I mean, it did. I mean, that did not stop in the 70s. That's basically what happened to TLC. Really? In the nineties, yeah, no shit. Like they got fucked out of their money. They a bunch. They ended up like being bankrupt because they essentially were like the, one of the biggest acts in the world, making millions and millions of dollars. Yet individually, they were making like a couple thousand dollars. Damn. Yeah, they got fucked hard, Damn. and it was it was for the same reasons that they were basically like, "Don't worry about it, kid. You're going to be huge. Just sign it." Yeah. And that is essentially what's happening here. Yeah. And we're so it's this subtle turn from. The juicy fruits and the that kind of Beach Boys rip off to this real like 
slimy sleaziness. And it's it happens in a way that is not, like I said, it's very subtle. You don't notice that the story changes its track in a, in a very interesting and very cool way. Yeah. I wish I could, I wish I didn't appreciate it as much as I did. Because again, I don't, I don't have a lot of respect for Brian De Palma, but that's a person. But God damn it, is he good? <laughs> it's, a, it's a begrudging respect. And really, uh, I wish I didn't. Yeah. So later, Swan reviews the footage, unable to look at himself on the screen. Now, we can't see him either, but the voice you just heard is not the same as the voice that we're hearing. And this one sounds all haggard and sinister. So now, by candlelight, the Phantom gets to work rewriting his cantata set to a song called The Phantom's Theme, which is a song about being haunted by the voice of his muse. It's a great song about pulling together all the good and bad parts of yourself to create a perfect expression of self and music. Um, it's the only way to be. I will. I, I, you know, it's something that just occurred to me. When we were talking about Fright Night with Peaches, we talked about uh, how the character of Amy in Fright Night feels very shoehorned in. I was in just thinking about that, up- too a story about two, like an intense relationship between two men. Yeah. This is what I think Phoenix feels like in this movie is they were like, no, 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 this feels like two. This is a story about two men locked in this really intense relationship that has almost very weird sexual undertones. Yeah. So you gotta play up her character more because she feels like a real throwaway in this. It's, it is. That's, that is interesting because I mean, they set out to do Phantom of the Opera and you can't do that without a Christine character. Right. Cause like I said, she is integral to that story. She is the reason he goes crazy. Yeah. But yeah, but to your point, De Palma seems like barely interested in the Christine character yeah. and is way more interested in these two sort of struggling dudes. So yeah. In a meeting with Philbin, he informs his heavy that Phoenix is out. She's too perfect. Swan hates perfection in anyone but himself. He insists that his cantata needs something heavy. So we flash across several groups, a bunch of hippies, <sighs> a vocal duo, a country guy, and we land on a trashy glitter rocker in a gold suit who we're going to meet in a little while. Well, there's also the, the do, du- isn't there like a doo-wop musical, like a, like a, uh, not a Shangri-Las, uh, like the Supreme. There is, yeah, there is a, there is a girl group. In because there. that's the, I'm like, I want that band <laughs> to do. To I want to know more about them. Tell, tell me about them. What are they up to? So at a press, a press conference, That's the second time we're going to get people of color and they're going to flash right by them, Just zip right past them. So at a press conference at an airport, Swan addresses the press, introducing his newest project and introduces Faust, a cantata written by the late Winslow Leach. And they will be recording it at a live performance at the Paradise this coming Friday. And it will be performed not by the Juicy Fruits, who are dead, but by ghosts, <laughs> by the voice of the future. The dude we just saw in the gold suit, Beef. Mm. Okay, here we go. Buckle up, everybody. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. Beef is an interesting character. Yeah. So, I. It. Yeah. Uh, you know, he's uh, 70s swishy gay. My, so I wondered, is this, and I, I brought him up before, and I can't remember if you if you were familiar with him. Um, uh, Michael Greer was an actor from the 60s and 70s, primarily. He's in stuff in the 80s, too. Uh, he was a cabaret performer. He was queenie in uh, uh, Fortune in Men's Eyes. It was a, a Broadway yeah. play that got adapted. Yeah. Uh, uh, he's in Gay Deceivers, mm-hmm. movie from the 60s. Um, I wonder if this character might have been written for that. Because he that this is sort of how Michael Greer felt as an actor. He's a great actor, great singer. 
Um, but he was very obviously gay and he didn't really do anything to, to hide that because the character of beef is a stereotype and a very, very obvious stereotype in a way that feels offensive, but also to me feels not offensive. Yeah. Um, you know what it is, is he seems to me like, um, like a normal Midwestern, just anybody looked at David Bowie and was like, Oh, so that, that's what I'm wondering. That is guy's like, queer. This is, a, this is a dig at like the New York Dolls and at David Bowie at, at Glam, essentially. Yeah. And I think to anyone who watched like a, a, a so Gen Z sits down to watch this movie now, they would immediately clock this and say, well, this is uh, this is offensive. This is a gay stereotype and it's offensive. And I have had this conversation with younger people a lot in wherein I say, well, yes, that is a stereotype. I also know people who are like that, people who are older than me uh, that, you know, grew up in this, the 50s and 60s. And that that is how they are. I mean, there are very flamboyant gay men because they don't do much. They don't say that he's gay. They don't do much to say that he's not either. Mm. Uh, he is very obviously gay. But it's an interesting character because I think and we'll talk about this later, but I think. I don't find this character offensive. I do. And I don't like I, I, the fact that it's, it is a straight man playing the role. It is written by a straight man who is obviously has some issues with all these things. So he, he, there is that sort of like questionable, what are you doing here? But at the same time, he is one of the most fun parts of this movie. Yeah. He's one of my favorite characters. And I mean, he's the butt of the joke. And that's, I think, what makes it hard in a way that like, you know, Tim Curry is a straight man who played a very, very gay character that is iconic and never feels like the butt of the joke. Right, right. And so there's an interesting parallel, not parallel there. It's a it's a, an interesting thing to think about. But I honestly don't. I think he is one of the best parts of this movie. Mm, yeah. And like it's like I said, like when I first discovered this movie, it was on his like big performance scene. And that's the moment that I kind of fell in love with the movie. And also, like I said, when I ever, I see that actor, I immediately think of beef. So like there's, there's something to that performance that kind of like really fucking plants a, a flag in my mind. So like, I mean, he leans a little too far forward into it. Mm. They were like, you're almost over the edge there, buddy. But like, okay, you pull it back. But <laughs> at the same time, he is one of the more fun parts of the movie. Yeah. So Swan visits the Phantom, who is passed out over his own work. He gives him a little pick-me-up in the form of some pills. Giant pills. He says, he says ah, a little breakfast. <laughs> gives him some speed. And he informs him that Phoenix is doing wonderfully, even though he has no intention of featuring her. So now, on stage, Beef is rehearsing, but fucking the whole thing up since it was written with a soprano in mind. On stage, Phoenix has been relegated to backup singer. And, and he has on uh, platform shoes. This is why I thought of New York Dolls, because the platform, <laughs> the platform shoes, shoes he has on are like David Johansson in New York Dolls, like these fucking ridiculous. He may as well be wearing big, chunky stilettos. These are like nine inch heels. They're like, yeah, they're like wood, wood bottom platforms. So he can't, once he slips, he can't get back up. Yeah, I mean, basically all you can do in these things is stomp. <laughs> so Beef sucks at the whole thing, uh, but he's been given the carte blanche to sort of make it his own. And I, this is where I think that Ray Kennedy thing, it's very interesting to be like, Ray Kennedy is a very strange choice because he's not a very good singer. I mean, he's yeah, fine. He's okay. He, he, yeah, he does um, the job, but he's not a singer. In retrospect, uh, De Palma has said like, because there are parts when when he when he sings in his own voice, 
And De Palma's like, he's a pretty good singer. Like, we really should have just let him do do the vocals. Instead of like this weird it's not staccato, but he just it is up and down in 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 a very untrained way. Yeah. Yeah. So but yeah. he's supposed to be like Alice Cooper and basically, yeah, for for sure. So now the cantata is now finished. Swan takes it from the studio as the Phantom sleeps. As he leaves, he instructs his security to wall the Phantom's lair up. So now later the cask of Amontillado. Yep. For, for for God's sake, Montresor. <laughs> so later the Phantom uh, wakes to discover that he's been ripped off again and the studio's walled off. Enraged. I mean, I guess at this point, Winslow, it's kind of on you, buddy. I know, I know. Fool me once. Enraged, he smashes through. Now, beef, Fool me nine times. <laughs> can't get fooled again. Come on. So Beef, having heard the Phantom scream, is now spooked. Philbin tells him to cool off and take a shower, which he does. This, oh, this is when Beef, he's sitting at his uh, his dressing table, and there are physique photos scattered yeah, about. Yeah, Where B- it's like, Bod okay, magazine. let's just pull it back a little bit. <laughs> So, yeah. So in a callback, oh, this is when he start, he runs out and he goes down the stairs and Philbin is like, wait, where are you going? He tells him, he's like, the Phantom is real. Phantom is real. And he goes, I know drug real from real, real. <laughs> yeah. And I thought that is the line of the fucking movie. Yeah, yeah. I love that so much. Yep. Yeah. So in a callback to the shower scene in Psycho, the Phantom sneaks up on him and attacks him with a plunger, informing him that he'll kill him if he performs his music. It's only for Phoenix. Well, now, now it's only for Phoenix. So before it was only for Winslow, but now it's for Phoenix. So outside Philbin spots beef, trying to make a run for it. Beef tells him what just happened, but I don't think Philbin knows that Winstow is still alive and is the Phantom. So Philbin, I know drug real from real real. (laughs) Philbin thinks he's just being paranoid from all the drugs he's on, gets him back in the club to reform. So now it's opening night for Faust. Ladies and gentlemen, ghost. Yep, the Juicy Fruits now reanimated as the Undeads. Uh, perform a song called Somebody Super Like You, which I, and it's this supposed is, to be. I love it's this. It's basically supposed part. to be Alice Cooper. Yes. But it feels so British. Uh, it's got a real um, stage musical kind of vibe. Yeah, to it's it. not edgy enough to be rock and roll. It's not uh, Welcome to My Nightmare. It's not, you know, uh, any of that. It's not, the, you know, it's not Alice Cooper. No. And I think that's what they're trying to do because at that point, who is the fucking king of shock rock? It's yeah. Alice Cooper. Oh, and right. And this is the part where they're like, they pulled their, they appear to be pulling people out of the crowd and like severing arms and limbs, right. which is shit that Alice Cooper was doing at the time. Right. But it doesn't feel that way. It feels, again, what was the band? With, is it Sorcerer? Sorcerer. From that it is that. Stunt Rock. Very Sorcerer. God, it's, everybody watch Stunt Rock. Well, okay. You got to get high first. Then watch Stunt <laughs> Because if I watched that movie sober, I would be bored out of my fucking mind. Here's the thing about Sorcerer. They've got a member who just, he's just a stage magician. He performs magic tricks. Yeah. And in Stunt Rock, there is a wizard duel. (laughs) They have two people dueling on stage at the whole time. And I'm just like, this is the greatest thing I've ever seen in my life. (laughs) Does that movie have a plot? I don't know. I don't don't think so. I think it's just a scene of like different stunts. It's basically a montage of of stunts and then a wizard duel, a rock and roll. Fucking great. And you know what? Is there a cooler phrase than wizard duel, rock and roll? (laughs) Nope. No. Nope. No. That's the (laughs) t-shirt. Wizard duel, rock and roll. Yeah. Uh, So yeah. Um, then what they do, then they take all the body parts that they take and they, and they, they hand them off to some like nurses who will appear to be like sewing them up. And then this coffin goes up. And- so this is a nod to Frankenstein. I wonder though, if this is a nod to Rocky horror. 
Because the movie is 75, but the play is 72. Yeah. Uh, maybe it just feels because like that moment in the play where they put the, the, you know, Rocky together. Yeah. Yeah. There's, there's some, uh, I could see some parallels there. Cause he's a, you know, Rocky is a, is a muscle man and there's all that kind of like physique shit. And I, I could see that. Yeah. So, I yeah. mean, he comes out more like Frankenhooker in this. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But want a date? Got any money? It's basically that. So, yeah, he's he's shocked by a big neon lightning bolt, which gives birth to the monstrous beef. And so uh, as as the coffin lowers, we see the phantom rise on the rigging in one of the movie's like signature scenes. It's very cool. A beef now performs life at last while the phantom watches from the rafters. And at a certain point, he appears to play a guitar solo while the vocal track continues, uh, not even bothering to lip sync, showcasing Swan's ambivalence to the craft of music itself. And that, that again, this is that subtlety of you watch entropy, musical entropy happening. It starts out with this very polished, juicy fruit thing. And by the end of this, nobody gives a fuck about anything. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's just, I mean, by the end, Ed, it's just chaos. It's literally like just a fucking mob. Yeah. Yeah. So at the height of the performance, the Phantom sets the lightning bolt sailing down the stage where it strikes beef, electrocuting him. And in the ensuing chaos, Philbin sends Phoenix out onto the stage to calm the crowd. And she performs a song called Old Souls, which is a distinctly Carpenter's sounding song. One of my favorite. Oh, yeah. one Anytime of, she sings, they all sound like a fucking Carpenter song. Yeah, it's one of my favorite songs in the entire movie. Also, I've always really liked Karen Carpenter's voice. So there's like the obvious yeah. parallel. But here's why I think the dancing in the previous scene is probably not an act. I think she's just not a comfortable dancer because... She does a kind of funky chicken type of yeah, she, move, yeah. and it's just, yeah, uh, it just sort of screams white lady dancing. Wh- at a which is funny to me. because in a couple of years she's going to be in a movie as a dancer. Yeah, she's not a good dancer though. Yeah. <laughs> not even, not even a little bit. Uh, but yep. So uh, as she does this, the Phantom sort of mans the spotlight for her, thrusting her to superstardom. The swan seizes on this and immediately exploits Phoenix, who wants more of that crowd. She, too, is unaware that Winslow is still alive. But when a mob of hysterical fans block her exit, a mysterious stranger offers her a rose and a way out. So now on the roof, the fan. This is where it starts to feel very cynical. Yeah. So on the roof. I mean, it's been cynical all along, but this is where he really hammers it home. Yeah, because she rejects him here. Right. Because, you know, we meet her and, you know, when he meets, when Winslow meets her, at what's it called? Swandom? The, the, the Swanage. The library. Uh, so he's at the library at Swanage and she's this very sympathetic person who's like, yes, of course, I want to perform this with you. And now it's like, here's what fame does to people. Here's what drugs do to people. Because she he's basically like, no, you must stay with this man. He's dangerous, blah, 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 blah. It's like, okay, well, you're also wearing a fucking metal mask and you're a yeah, lunatic who's yeah, killing she's, people. So she, I'm not sure you're the guy I'm going to take <laughs> advice from. She immediately turns on him. Where in the, She's in, basically like, how else can I be famous if not for this? And it's like, Jesus Christ, man, is that your fucking message? Like, is that your take? takeaway here no, i know that you think that's what this is and it's funny because that's essentially what uh gene siskel's takeaway is it's yeah. like this fucking garbage it's like does it not occur to you that like this is just music that some people like to make they have fun making this music led zeppelin are an insanely talented band one of the most talented rock bands ever yeah 
So to just be like, oh, these assholes, they're only in it for the money. And it's like, or here's an idea. They also like making music yeah. and they're not like fucking dangerous psychopaths. Uh, yeah, well, I mean, when on cocaine they were, but. Uh, yeah, I mean, okay. Maybe <laughs> one or two of them dated a 14 year old. And when I say dated, I mean sexually assaulted. Yeah. It, uh, but it does have this very like, oh, well, they wouldn't be in my movie. So blam, you're a lunatic and an ass. Yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, yeah, it's it's a weird twist because there is there is this, even in, in Phantom of the Opera, there is a period where Christine is quite taken by the Phantom. It's Until she actually, see, like, well, she's, I think when she sees his face, she sees, sees him. his face, she's horrified. But even, like, eventually she's like, oh, you're crazy, too. But you don't get that. You don't get that in this, though. It's not you're dangerous and crazy. I'm backing away. It's more like, no, I want to be famous at all costs. And I think that's where the cynicism comes in. It's like you can't imagine a world where this is that someone would do this for other reasons. Yeah. It's either money or fame or that's it. Yeah. It's like you can't. It's like I said, it's like Gene Siskel. You can't imagine a world where people like making horror movies because it's fun. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, no, no, nope. They're just, it's a, it's a cynical, gross cash grab. I'm like, God damn it. I know. But Y'all I, fucking deserve each other. <laughs> but I love, I do. I love this scene because he, he drags her over to the edge of the, of the roof. And he points down at, at Beef's body being loaded into the, into the ambulance. And he just says he wouldn't listen. Yeah. I mean, it's a great moment, but like, yeah. Jesus, come yeah. on. So, There's a sort of uh, didacticism that I'm like, oh God. Yeah. Yeah. But anyways, what he does is he warns her like Swan's going to steal your voice. And she's like, fuck this. He's awesome. And I'm going to be a star. Yeah. Have you seen his fucking hair? It's beautiful. Have you seen it? Have you seen it when he runs? It bounces. <laughs> it reflects the sun. Not even when I had long hair, did my hair bounce? No. Yeah. Now, so that night, from the roof of the Swanage, in true De Palma voyeuristic fashion, the Phantom watches like a goddamn creep. The Phantom watches Swan and Phoenix having sex, and, and like a goddamn creep who can't decide which one of them he wants to have sex with, <laughs> yeah. but he can't bring it up to anybody because he'll be really embarrassed. Now, as they're doing it, Swan activates the closed circuit cameras on the roof so he can watch the the Phantom's spirit break. And, can, and again, this is that really like uh, Paul Paul Williams gets to be what a fucking great character to get to play because he gets to be so terrible. Yeah, yeah. Consumed by grief, the Phantom. Also, is there anything more seventies than a circular bed? A water bed. I well, no, that's eighties. That's more. That's, that's true. But I do. I have heard. <laughs> Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I'm wrong. There is nothing better than smoking pot and fucking on a water bed. Mm-hmm. That's pieces, everybody. That's pieces. <laughs> Go watch pieces. Go watch pieces. Listen to our episode about it. So, uh, yeah, consumed by grief, the Phantom stabs himself. In a very, it's, it, this is a very Italian moment because the blood is, the, Argento himself oh my flew God. over and applied it. It's that, it's that thick paint, paint shit. Yeah. It's just paint. Yep. Uh, now, Swan bears a diabolical power. The Phantom lives for as long as Swan lives. And if he's thinking about killing Swan, he'll die, too, of the wound that he just has sustained. Right. So we're supposed to believe, and this is where the story gets a little convoluted and a little bit muddy, but Swan is not the devil. No. He is sort of a minion of the devil, but we're sort of led to believe that he is the devil. This is sort of a Daniel Johnson uh, crossroads moment. Daniel Johnson, is that right? Uh, no, Daniel Johnston was the, uh, the no, outside no, no. guy. Uh, he was the one who jumped out of the airplane. Uh, oh, what's his God, name? Fucking Robert Johnson. There we go. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. Now, the Phantom attacks him anyway, but the knife does nothing because, as we learn, Swan is under contract, too. 
And the next day, Rolling Stone reports that Swan and Phoenix will be married at the Paradise at the big performance. And the Phantom finds Swan's stash of videos, leading him. This to- is, again, also very 70s. Yeah. It lead- like this giant public. Didn't somebody do that? Uh, I mean, other than the Moonies. Oh, uh, that's a cult, y'all. <laughs> yeah, uh, I don't I don't know. It sounds familiar, it, like there was somebody who just recorded everything. It has a very John and Yoko feel. Yeah. Yeah. But uh, yeah, so he, he this leads him to Swan's original pact. And meanwhile, a woman approaches Swan as though he should recognize her. And then fans talk to her and she reveals a photo taken of him 20 years ago in the 50s. And he looks exactly the same. Mm-hmm. Yep. Beautiful hair. Beautiful hair. But, ah, but what we're about to see is he had like short curly hair. No mm-hmm. less lovely. But yeah, looked looked like a big baby. <laughs> big. Like what if what if Truman Capote was a big, you know what what if Truman Capote? Just call it that. <laughs> yeah. So in Swan's video, he reveals that because he's getting old, he intends to kill himself. But his reflection in the mirror, the devil, offers, also a great moment. Yeah, offers him eternal youth. But in exchange, he has to watch the videos of himself, aged as he is, so that he knows how lucky he is. And the weakness is that if the tape bearing the agreement is destroyed, Swan will also be destroyed. So now there's also footage of the Phantom's packs, as well as Phoenix being pressured uh, by Swan to sign hers and footage of Swan plotting Phoenix's assassination live on TV at the top of the wedding vows. This is where I start to be like, all right, land the plane, De Palma. (laughs) So in a rush to save Phoenix, the Phantom sets fire to Swan's tapes, sealing his own fate, but also Swan's. Down in the Paradises Theater, the show of a lifetime is kicking into high gear, driving the crowd to madness. Now in comes Phoenix, dancing her way to the to the altar with that. Just fucking funky chicken in her ass up to that altar. Yeah, funky chicken. <laughs> she looks real uncomfortable. Yeah. She doesn't know what to do with her hands. <laughs> Nobody ever knows what to do with their hands. No. 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 So all the way to the altar while the assassin assembles his rifle. Now in comes Swan, rising from the stage depths, wearing a mask. And the wedding began Wearing like a metal mask. Uh, yeah. Yeah. And it's also it's cool. Like, it's in his likeness. Yep. And so the wedding begins as Philbin, uh, as the priest says, uh, till death do you part. The assassin fires, but the phantom jerks the gun, causing the bullet to go wild, shooting Philbin. And then in the ensuing chaos, the crowd rushes to the stage. The phantom swings down, snatching the mask from Swan's face, revealing him to be a melt-faced fiend. But his hair is no less awesome. Mm, Glorious. Glorious. Great hair. Swan attempts to strangle the horrified phoenix, but the phantom snatches one of the bird hats off a dancer, stabs Swan with it, killing him. And then the fucking crowd goes wild like a bunch of goddamn maniacs. Fucking lunatics. The crowd lifts Swan's body, passes him overhead. As the, the phantom's wound opens. He throws his mask off and writhes on the ground as he dies, revealing himself fully as Winslow, as Phoenix looks on horrified. Uh, Winslow dies in her arms as the blood-smeared crowd parties around them. We cut to the Death Records logo, play the song The Hell of It, roll credits. God damn, that song is so fucking good. Everybody go listen to Paul Williams. Just look up, uh, go to Spotify or whatever your fucking thing of choice is. Paul Williams, the hell of it. Awesome song. Great song. It's a really great song to end on. Yeah. Yeah. Fucking Phantom of the Paradise, you guys. Now, here's what I wonder. Cult films require a cult. This movie, I think... Mm, I'm not sure that it has enduring quality. Um, 
I think that I think you might be right. I feel this is a movie that that it feels like it, it had a cult at one time, but that cult has diminished over time yeah. as we get further and further away from it. It feels um, so of its time that removed yeah. from the context of the 1970s and the kind of the music that it was sort of a, kind of a parody of or a reaction to. It's starting to feel very old fashioned and eight. That's the thing. The themes don't really, the themes aren't relevant. Anymore. I mean, it really, what it comes down to is, is this, does this musical have staying power? And I think the answer is aside from great songs, probably not because it's, you know, it's, uh, it has a weird queerness. I think that attracted a lot of people to it, but even the queer parts of it don't really feel relevant anymore. No. If anything, they maybe are a little bit more offensive than they probably once were. I just, I don't, you know, in 2024, it doesn't feel subversive. Any tropes or themes it's dealing with are probably aren't even recognizable to younger people. I mean, if anything, maybe it's a, uh, it's a curiosity in Brian De Palma's body of work. That is, that's why it stays relevant, but I don't, I don't see this one hanging on. No, no. Like I will love this movie until the day that I die, but also. Yeah. You're also almost 50. Yeah. So like, you know, like I, I, I have that and, you know, and also my, like, I, if you guys haven't picked up on it, like we, we're gigantic fans of like music in all its forms. We worked in a record store for a really fucking long time and. Badly, badly. And I managed it. I managed it very badly. How that store held on is beyond me. But man, I, I look back on those days. I was too. drunk most of the time. I look back on those days fondly. Uh, but yeah, it's... it's mm, well, it's one of us. I love it. I loved it. It was a really good time. But, you know, it's that. It's this sort of like this moment in time that is very interesting to me. It references a lot of musicians that I... I you know, I don't, I don't listen to the. I don't, listen, I don't make a habit of listening to the Carpenters or Linda Ronstadt every now and I then. Do. Every now and then, I'll put a little something on, or you know. But yeah. the point is that, like, we we recognize what it's the themes and the uh, the you know all the things it's dealing with is recognizable to us. I think, and more time, like all things, the more time that passes, the the further we get from it. It just doesn't, it's not going to be relevant. It's going to, it's going to look like listening to a Scott Joplin record eventually where it's like, I, I've heard this somewhere. It sounds like something else in a sample somewhere, but it doesn't, I don't get it. It's, uh, you know what it is, is there's, this is, it's weird. It's I, cause I can't think of too many cult movies that will, that will have, that have a sort of sell by date or an end date. Like Rocky horror was a movie that I sort of felt like it disappeared for a little while, but that's a very, that's a very evergreen movie. Like my daughter likes that movie. She, and even that, I mean, when we get to it, well, when we get to the movie, cause we are going to get to the movie this year, but when we get to it, we can talk about that, but I think it's for different reasons. Yeah. I don't think it resonates for the same reason because I don't think queerness means the same thing that it used to. No, but there's a thing, there's something about this movie that makes me think that one day the last member of the Phantom of the Paradise's like cult audience will die and it will just yeah. kind of fade into the, into the rear view, which is a, a really weird thing to think about. I mean, you know, you got to make space for new shit, I guess. But <laughs> yeah. It is sort of a sad thing to think like, and, and you know, I think with, with the internet now at full, full steam, it's like, is there even cult stuff anymore? Really? If you can find your audience, like the whole point about cult movies was that people found each other, even if mm. it was just to sit next to each other in a theater, people found each other 
you know, it's like punk rock. You know, we used to have to fucking order records from Germany and like dig through catalogs that would get sent to you in the mail after seven weeks or whatever. Like now you can buy whatever the fuck you want. You hear it in goddamn commercials. Like, and that's not like a get off my lawn thing. It's just an observation. Hmm. Yeah. It's just, everything is the, the market is so mass these days that everything, like it's like I said, everything's available all the time. There are items that I feel like, like, they get that sort of mass exposure in the way that everything does now, but they still do appeal to to very strongly to a very small group of people. So I think that as time passes, there will still be cult items. Right. It just Um, won't be this. It just, yeah, it won't, it just, it'll feel a little different. It'll be unrecognizable to us, but it'll still be a cult, you know? I think that's reassuring. It's sort of like looking at hippies in Vermont. You know, I don't get it. I don't know why it's still a thing, but it's nice to know that it is still a thing. Yep. So what do we do next? Well, we will be back with this here show, 99 Cent Rental, in two weeks with a film that will probably have been a bad choice on my part and we will absolutely be regretting. We are going to watch Garbage Pail Kids, the movie. (laughs) Oh, no. And I'm going to apologize in advance. I'm sure it's going to be a terrible time. It's going to be real hard to talk about because that movie is absolute dog shit. Yep, yep. And, uh, and we'll be back in a week uh, with uh, Bring Me the Axe when we we, we got got a couple of We had a couple of guests who are going to go through motherfucking X-Ray with us. And I'm excited about those guests just as much as I'm excited about that movie. All right. So we'll see you in two weeks. Or a week. Good for nothing, bad in bed. Nobody likes you and you're better off dead. Goodbye, goodbye. We've all come to say goodbye, 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 goodbye. Born defeated, died in vain. Super destructive, you were hooked on pain. I know your music lingers on. All of us are glad you're gone. If I could live my life half as worthlessly.